The following podcast is proudly brought to you by Vite Ramen. Use the link in the description and use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off tasty, healthy, and easy-to-make ramen. And also use the offer code BROKENSILICON to get 30% off all Windows keys and die shrink to get 3% off everything else at cdkeyoffer.com. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today has been actually quite an interesting day. We had one guest that was slotted to come in and then apparently was sick and woke up like, I guess, at 2 p.m. And then immediately <laughs> emailed me, hey, I actually just woke up. There's no way I'm well enough to do it today. I won't say who yet. I mean, obviously, anyone who's part of the Patreon knows who I'm talking about. That person will be saved for a later episode. And it so happens the guest that's about to be introduced was slotted to probably record either end of December or uh, mid-January. But, uh, you know, I (laughs) literally like 10 minutes after I got that email, you emailed me saying, hey, um, are you have you put any more thought into the exact recording week? And I was like, yeah, how about in like four hours? Um, Why don't you uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, so uh, I'm Taylor Haddon. Uh, I'm a senior tools engineer is the title that I have at, at Obsidian Entertainment. Um, I've been doing tools work for my entire career starting in uh, 2012 uh, after hmm. graduating from uh, Champlain College with a bachelor's in game design that, you know, only gets used in my spare time, as it were. But it was a great uh, learning board to get a good handle on all of the things that I'm now using and talking uh, with people about on a daily basis. Uh Every single aspect of game development is where I have my fingers. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I talked to you briefly today, kind of as a first touch base, to make sure I understand even what you do. I, it's interesting, you say you've been doing, you know, you've been a tools engineer the whole time. I mean, what made you, like, uh, going all the way back into, I assume you knew you wanted to work on games since high school, at least. Like, yeah. what made you choose tool you know I, did you even know about this as a specific thing you would do did you think you'd do more animation or like story type of work like what 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 led you down that path you've been doing it the whole time yeah so the, the path is really interesting i've i've been like all about games since i first played or watched my friend play uh, legend of zelda ocarina of time way back in the day and i thought to myself oh man i want to make a game like this i think i make i can make a better game than this I, I believe in myself, that kind of a thing. Um, haven't yet personally made a better game than Ocarina of Time, but here's hoping. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't know. When people, I mean, uh, you know, I guess two things. Number one, I guess we should say any views or things you say moving sure. forward are the thoughts of yourself. <laughs> um, they are not the opinions of anyone at Microsoft or Obsidian, Definitely but let's not. get that yeah. out of the way first. Probably everyone knows because they clicked on this, but like, you you work at Obsidian. Yeah. You're working on yeah. I think we can say the Outer Worlds too yeah. and Avowed. You've worked on Destiny. I think it's up for debate if you've made better games than Ocarina <laughs> of Time. I don't sure. don't sell well, yourself short I've here. I've certainly been uh, as part of large, massive companies that are making really cool stuff for sure. So yeah, the the story of of getting into working on tools is sort of 
I sort of fell into it by default. It's something that I found myself good at and able to 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 uh, provide good product. And it's a niche that is underserved in the game mm-hmm. development community. I've never felt a stronger sense of of job security than than I like more than I've ever would have ever expected. So so yeah, and and so. When I went, so I went to college for game design. I wanted to be, you know, a game designer, a guy that's like, hey, yeah, when you push the stick forward, these things happen. And it's yeah. you know, like, like, like the ideas guy. I want to be a, a cool creative director. Look at this arcade role. game I made for a project where we have this special ability I haven't seen in another game exactly, before. Exactly know? that kind of thing. And so from there, I was like, I wanted my cool ideas to be real things. And I need to learn how to program because no one was going to make my crazy ass ideas but me. So I, I, I basically taught myself, I mean, I was at college and there were some courses in, uh, that, that, that helped get me into like programming, but a lot of my own, a lot of my real programming experience is self-taught and then learned on the job. And then, you know, after that, uh, after college, I worked for like four and a half years doing something completely different than games, which is working on just working on software for a small company that makes mm-hmm. educational software, or not educational software, but software used in schools for administrative purposes. And that's like, that's tools. That's buttons that make numbers do stuff. Like it's very cut and dry, pretty boring. Uh, did that for a long time. And then uh, there was an opportunity at Vicarious Visions. And mm-hmm. I hopped aboard that train in, in 2017. And then I've been working in game dev uh, since then. And, um, yeah, when I hopped into to VV, we were working on uh, Destiny 2, and I'll, we'll get into that later. Well, yeah, so I, it sounds like, you know, when you, and it's similar, like, at engineering, like, because I went to college for mechanical engineering. You know, I originally thought, oh, I'm going to design new types of cars or guns or machines. And what I found more and more is, because I assume it's the same thing. They put you in these project teams in college, and then you kind of self-filter in that project who's good at what to make a game yeah. or some thing. Exactly. I always, more and more, I'd, I'd, I'd often be part of the initial concept, but then when it came time to actually do the work, I was almost always someone involved in the process, efficiency, and like critiquing things. That's always what I did. And so that's how mm-hmm. I got more into like an industrial engineering side professionally in that. And then... Of course, then I just do a backflip and become a YouTuber. So that just came out of nowhere. <laughs> so my story, my metaphor actually falls completely apart near the end of my example. But yeah, I'm guessing that was something that you found is that you were really, I'm assuming you're very good compared to a lot of people, your peers at programming and at making sure things work and at finding ways to link things together then, right? I mean, it depends on what you think my peer group is. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, uh, I think in 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 college, I was certainly uh, one of the best designers who was able to program in in, mm-hmm. in in my program so in that sense yes and now in my peer group you know i'm not the smartest person in the room almost ever and that's sort of that's sort of where you want to be you know you always want someone in that room that's like that guy there's there's a genius right there and i've worked with some pretty incredible engineers mm-hmm. that are able to just do like, the, the thing that i find really incredible about really excellent engineers is their ability to come into a code base completely with, with no, you know, preconceptions, mm. no experience in that code base, spend like a week in it and then come out like expert level on that code. Mm. It's really incredible stuff. And then those, those people become just amazing resources for a company. And that's why they're paid mm-hmm. so much. 
Oh, those are the people that make the, the, the real money. But, well, so what does a, you know, a tools engineer actually do then? We've kind of yeah. been dancing around, I believe, directly answering the question. Like, like day-to-day, like, like what do you do? do at a at obsidian you know who do you work with what are the things in the game that you actually touch yeah so i work on uh, on a dedicated tools team at obsidian and when i was at very vicarious visions it was a similar story i worked on a dedicated tools team and our role was pretty much our users in our case our users are the developers of whatever project that we're supporting destiny or uh, uh outer worlds and uh, now and those users have complaints, they have problems, they have uh, a, some, some, some tool that doesn't exist, some tool that's not working very well, uh, mm-hmm. some, some problem that they need solving. And those problems become what we call user stories, if anybody's familiar with Scrum sort of systems or agile style systems uh, in terms of project management. And then we sort of chew on those user stories and try and find engineering solutions to uh, solve the problems, make software that, that, that fixes people's issues, removes human suffering from the equation as much as possible so that people can just focus on doing awesome creative work and iterate and make something really cool. Right. Like, you're not building the engine, you're not sculpting the characters, really, or making the AI, but if someone wants to put something into a world you like you might be the person involved in either making the transition into moving those files into the world easier more efficient actually work in the first place if it's not working yeah pipelines pipelines are so important um so that that, i think that's one of the uh, uh most important and most easily forgotten about parts of this whole process that like the most important tool chain that you have is your pipeline from asset into the engine and so by asset, I'm talking about anything that a designer artist is working on, that's called it, that's, that's, that's an asset. And that could be a, a mesh, a model mm-hmm. in, in Maya, that could be um, animation data in that, that, in that Maya file, it could be an audio uh, file, a wave file or something like that. Um, textures, uh, let's see, game maps, all of these things usually or almost invariably when you're working on them aren't the same thing that eventually gets loaded up into the game there's a processing step in in often called baking or or something like that uh baking there's lots of different baking or cooking i should say Mm -hmm. uh cooking is what is the term that unreal uses and um so that that's a big processing step because the the when you're editing data in maya maya wants to do things maya's way and then when you're done editing that thing, you're going to shunt that thing into a format that your game can read. And then the game is actually going to take that format and probably process it further into something that is optimized for the game to be able to load uh, directly into uh, exactly what it wants. So that everything is, uh, is smooth and efficient at runtime. And so that whole tool chain of, of software of getting from A to B or A to, a to B to C, really, that's a huge part of tools work. Right. And, and I think it's an interesting sort of role to have on as a guest because I've had people that just, just make the art or the people, a couple of visual effects people, some people that have designed maybe, I, I know the Ubisoft dev did a lot of things like how not necessarily the effects 
per se like the fire that appears on screen when you shoot a gun, but he like would do the modeling of how a tank's armor would change when it gets hit and like damage modeling and that type of stuff. Like you kind of interface with all of these groups, right? Yeah. And so you you can probably, I, I'm guessing, you need, well, see, I guess, right? Uniquely answer both a lot of questions about the actual development, but then also how the hardware powers it. Because yeah, I find a with a lot of people I talk to either... They're only involved in the actual hardware or most likely, actually, they actually don't care what the hardware is. They have no clue if their PC is running a 2060 or a 3090 and they just write the code. And if it doesn't work, it's not their problem. You know, I mean, so compartmentalization is both a a, a problem. I'm going to put that in in scare quotes. It's not really a problem, but it's really common. Mm -hmm. It's necessary to make games the level that we're making games these days it's human i mean how can we know everything? nobody can do everything nobody can have the expertise in everything so i'm not an expert at making a model but i can make a model and i can rig it Mm -hmm. and i can bring that sucker in and and animate it and and make it happen in the game because if i don't know how to do that how am i going to help someone do that and make that process really uh as, as smooth as it possibly can be so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm a jack-of-all-trades, master of just one. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let me start getting into some of these questions, yeah. kind of transitioning from what you do into how games are made. Brad Medlin writes in, he says, Hey, Tom and Taylor, how are developers creating large open-world environments? Is this something they are doing by creating models themselves, just tons of models and putting them together? Do they start from a previous file? Are they out using maps created from virtual reality capturing and then modifying that usually i'm just curious how they make these massive maps like in destiny 2 which is something you've worked on yeah so destiny 2 was was a big piece of work uh, when destiny was making tools they have they had a terrain system i don't know if mm-hmm. anybody's familiar with like height map terrain if you've ever played around in uh, unity's got a pretty basic straightforward height map terrain mm-hmm. system it's basically a big grid of triangles and then you can sort of raise it and lower it. And or even shapes. like Far Cry 2 or Far Cry 3's map editor. You know, I know I've done some of that just for fun. Yeah, it's a pretty intuitive system. And that's, that's, that can often be like the, the, the base starting point for something like, like a game uh, or for many open world games, especially open world games that are like, you know, outside, right? That's a really good starting point. Um, mm-hmm. And so in, in Destiny and specifically, that was a starting point. And then... Uh, modelers come in and they make an absolute mess of mesh. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's lots of different processes here. There's a, a process called gray boxing, which is the first step of, of understanding, or the first step where you're putting something in engine of, of getting, uh, getting mass out into the world. Mass out is another phrase that's, that's used. And that's sort of like, hey, a building goes here and uh, mm-hmm. there's a bridge over there. And instead of like making a really nice model of a bridge or a really nice model of a building, you've put a gray cube there to represent right, the like fact a place that there's holder, something like, there. They'll get to that one exactly, and it, like you'll, you'll get to that one, and and you iterate on that. So you you get all your gameplay running through with just this gray mesh, just nothing, and you're just running around and trying to make sure that your your sight lines are working, that mm-hmm. the the flow through the space feels right, uh, these sorts of things. And then once people, once once you know a level designer or an environment designer is feeling like they've got their space in a good place, then they're going to come in and start make turning those meshes from gray mesh into actual assets that are you know fully modeled, fully textured, 
that sort of thing. And then you're going to have, uh, after that, a lighter is going to come in, put in lights everywhere so it looks good. Uh, VFX is going to come in, put different, uh, you know, clouds or, or fog or water drops. And then audio has got to come in and make sure that when the audio, when those water drops are dropping, they're making drip sounds or that you have environmental sounds and stuff like that. So to make one space, it's, it's an iterative process through lots of different departments. And uh, that's pretty common. I, that, that's, that's, I think, pretty standard in the, in the industry now, especially at the AAA level. When I think of this, though, for single-player open-world games, and I'm guessing the second thing I'm going to say is especially probably true for a lot of multiplayer maps, is like, how much of it is like some auteur in a, in a, on a, at a desk drew the map himself and was like, this is what it should look like. And how much of it is you just kind of hit the ground running because, and I know this is a incredibly crude and ridiculous comparison as I've like, but I would make multiplayer maps in Far Cry too. Half of the time I would just take a pre-made biome that would randomly generate. Like it randomly generate based on a seed. Here's an African desert. And I go, this looks kind of like what I want to do. And I modify it from there. But then sometimes I would just start throwing together mountains and rocks and be like, yeah, I've made this interesting looking area. This would work to put a city on this hill. Sure. <laughs> like how much of it is they draw up the multi, the entire single player map ahead of time. And then it's the job of the people working to try to mimic the vision and how much of it is. Let's just start making a forest. And you know what? That one cliff you made is probably good for the start of that one level, right? I think it's really like a combination of both you totally have scenarios where like a designer mm -hmm. builds the layout of, um, of an area. Um, let's see, uh, game developers toolkit by Mark Brown has a really great series talking with, uh, game designers and level designers as they work through different levels and their design processes behind that. I think one that was really interesting was the video uh, with the Clockwork Mansion in Dishonored 2. That's worth checking mm -hmm. out if you guys, if, if the audience wants a, a reference to that kind of a process where a person is sort of owning the design and the direction of a particular area from start to finish. Uh, and that's totally a way that, that stuff is made. And that's more on the auteur side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, that's definitely not, and almost never is, someone spending a mm -hmm. bunch of time on a piece of paper saying, this is perfect, go make this, and then that's the thing that comes out at the other end. That doesn't happen, because you're going to make that thing and be like, oh, I was wrong, this is terrible, or oh, there's this really cool idea, we're going to change this mm -hmm. and tweak this, and it's a huge, this like, iteration is just so important. That's the most important part of this process. You, just, you start in a place where it's easy to iterate, that's what gray mesh is for. Gray mesh is easy to set up, it's easy to delete, it's easy to change. And so it lets you iterate faster without having to worry about, you know, big assets or needing to change a model that was really expensive to make. Um, and so another piece of this that is uh, sort of what you were talking about a little bit with Far Cry 2 is mm -hmm. procedural generation. Uh, Houdini is, a, is becoming a really important tool, especially mm -hmm. for world creation, where uh, there's some videos floating around for... Uh, Far Cry 5 and how they were using Houdini to do like their whole map system. The, the map was broken up into different cells and for each cell you would come in and you'd pull in your height map or your height mm -hmm. information. You'd pull in um, and then you could add in layers for uh, water propagation. You could add in layers for vegetation that an artist could paint and then when it was and then that what that was doing Houdini was like placing trees 
or placing grass. Uh, Interesting. Because that's what I'm imagining, right? A lot of these open world games, like I'm playing Far Cry 6 a lot right now. It's huge. Yeah. There's no way... I have to imagine multiple parts of that map where some level of a, not random generation, but seed-generated cell, and then they went, this one fits here, this is what we want this to look like, and then they modify it from there. Is any of that going on in games like that? Or or is every single hill in Far Cry 6, literally they height-mapped, nope, the hill's this tall, and then I put a tree here? So there's 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 a difference between, like, like so there's a difference between, like, random generation and, like, seed-random ger- generation, and then... Uh, uh, like procedurally assisted design. And I think, mm-hmm. so Far Cry 6 and Far Cry 5 is probably is like almost definitely in the realm of like procedurally assisted design where designers come in and be like, I want a mountain up here and I want a river to come down like this. But instead of having to place every rock and tree, every inch, you just which say, is a long time. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah you, you have, to, you have to, to get the fidelity that you want in a game these days. It's so many individual little pieces of art to really sell the environment. And instead of having to place every single asset by hand and then change it when something mm-hmm. changes, because something's going to change, you just say, hey, this is a river. And then you, someone has set up a, a, a little tool that says, oh, yeah, at the edges of the river, we put rocks. And when the river mm-hmm. gets really steep, we put a, a waterfall. And then in areas with dense forest, we put trees. And then we have grass and fields. And then you, it can, can blend between these different layers. Um, there's another really excellent uh, GDC talk from the guys that did uh, Horizon talking about some of this procedural stuff that they were doing at runtime on GPU using compute, which is really cool, where they can just, mm-hmm. at runtime, their, their tools were built in-game because that was the fastest way to do things, where they can say, hey, let's paint this area to be grassy, and now it's grassy. And then they can do like whole biome swaps in a single frame. It's really cool stuff. Well, so let me start transitioning into this then. I mean, uh, skipping ahead and the script we have here towards more game engine talk, yeah. Gontis Peglis writes, and he says, hello, Tom, and hello, Taylor. I have only a vague idea of what a game engine does. But that said, I'm very interested in finding out what makes the game engines tick. How much can the limitations of an engine mold the final product? For example, I'm quite confused as to why the GTA trilogy was moved over to the Unreal Engine when the modding community proved just how much could be squeezed out of the original engine. Was this choice made because the third-party studio, perhaps, was familiar with UE from developing mobile games or something? And, and I hear this a lot. Like, I've heard this infamously brought up a bazillion times about what... Uh, 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 Mass Effect Andromeda that they wish it didn't use Frostbite and that limited it, which is always a weird thing I see when I see them complain about that, but then I see some maps in Battlefield or other games where I'm like, well, it seemed to work really well in that game. Why didn't it work? Is it because they weren't familiar with using Frostbite? Or, like, how much can you speak to how much, yeah, like a game engine molds things and just, again, what is a game engine? Sure. So, a game engine at its most basic level, I'd say, is you have a, a whole bunch of entities is usually the entities or game objects is a, is a common term. Actors is the term that Unreal uses. Um, and you've, you've got things that move around and things that don't move around maybe, and they look like something and they sound like something and they do stuff. So those are like the really core components. And when you boil those things down, the game engine is a system for rendering meshes, animating meshes, Mm -hmm. moving things around, playing sounds. And that's most of it, right? Like, 
So any, anything that does that is a game engine. And mm -hmm. there are lots of, oh, and physics. Physics is really important too. That's, that's a pretty standard thing yeah. now. So that if you have physics engines running alongside a game engine. Usually physics engines are slightly more uh, plug and play, or at least they have been in the past. I know that uh, Epic is pushing their own, their own tech now. Um, what is a game engine? Yeah, a, a game engine is about rendering stuff, whether that's to the screen or to, uh, or, or, or to you know an audio device. Those are like the primary rendering uh, targets, right? And it, it's about optimizing really tight loops and making sure things go mm -hmm. really fast. And you're thinking about things like cache coherency, where you know you, you don't want to. Um, if you have a big object that has lots of data in it, you don't necessarily want to be iterating over a huge array of that object because you have to read the whole darn thing to get to the next one. And it can be faster sometimes to have a separate array that's got, you know, representing a similar object that's got less stuff in a, mm -hmm. a line or in, in, in a, an array index so that you can rip through that stuff a lot faster and your, your less stuff uh, that you don't need is in, is in your cache. And you just like it. So that you're always getting a cache hit, which is you know hundred times faster than a cache miss at, at mm -hmm. baseline. So that's something that you know engine engineers are like super concerned about. They're thinking about this all the time, and they're trying to put together systems where with the things that need to run as fast as possible, like graphics. Graphics is always mm -hmm. the thing that needs to run as fast as possible. Everything else is peanuts, really, in comparison mm -hmm. to what the graphics is doing. Um, why Unreal is doing so well in the space because they're kicking butt in terms of making something that makes renders meshes really quickly. Yeah. In terms of like frame times, right? So you get a higher frame, right? Yeah, yeah. You want uh, you want to render more polygons, more objects in fewer milliseconds. And that's that's your job. Um but you hear these like almost buzzword sounding statements like this, you know. Decima is a powerful game engine. Sure. And when I look at things like Death Stranding or, you know, Horizon, I'm like, yeah, or like even Until Dawn, I remember back in the day, I was like, yeah, this game, even though it's usually this engine supposedly for shooters, looks insanely good. Yeah. You know, like what makes an engine powerful and what makes an engine cause problems for a dev team? Sure. So those are like two sides of the same coin, which is like usability. So when people talk about how Frostbite was a total pain in the butt, um, mm -hmm. there's a great book, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, that goes into some depth about how Frostbite was a big pain in the butt. And when um, Dragon Age Inquisition was started, there mm -hmm. were zero tools for making RPGs in Frostbite. There was, mm -hmm. there was not a third-person camera. They had to code that. Uh, there was no, there's no tools for, like, RPG items, the kind of UI that you would want for this, nothing. So they had to build all of that from scratch. Mm -hmm. And you know, that you can do that. That's relatively straightforward stuff to do, but that means that you have engineers that need to do that before anybody can get anything done. And I mm -hmm. think in in Inquisition's case in particular, you had crazy stuff where like the game wasn't like playable to get all together until like six months from ship. Like something, yeah, like <laughs> that's crazy, absolute madness. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, you, you had things like people making combat encounters, not knowing what they were like because they couldn't play it. 
because those systems weren't done yet. But they were like setting it up yeah. and they're like, hopefully this works. Right. Yeah, it to- totally crazy stuff. And you, if you take, uh, you, you take that, that jump and then go from Inquisition into, um, shoot, the, now the, the name of their, the next game that Bioware did is, is dropping from my brain like a, a useless, see? I, I don't we've, remember we've off the top for, of my head. forgotten, right? It, it was a huge deal. Anthem. There we go. There we go. Anthem. Anthem. Oh yeah, I can never remember the name of that game. <laughs> go Terrible on, yeah. name for a game. Anyway, so yeah, you roll into Anthem, and now you have you you just made an RPG in this engine, and now you need to make a massively connected, you know, multiplayer, mm-hmm. ser- heavily server oriented game style that Destiny mm-hmm. sort of like uh, spearheaded in terms of design sense. Of, you know, like the looter shooter, which needs to communicate with dozens of servers for like so many different actions. It's just an order of magnitude or more complex than what they were putting together in Inquisition. And they had no tools for it. They had to build it all from scratch. And so, right, so it's not really that like frostbite because I, I and maybe this is just coming from them trying to explain the problems they have. But they'll say statements like frostbite was not really made for games like this. Well, no, it can make any of these games. It's just it wasn't plug and play for an RPG. It's meant, they're using it for battlefields. They don't need any of these other tools. Totally, you know, and that and that's usually what the issue is. Then it sounds like yeah, I think there's there's when people think of engines, mm-hmm. um, you know, the creation kit, the the stuff that that the Bethesda does. People always like you know get upset with them for st- still using the same engine, quote unquote, right? When in reality, it's a code base that's been evolving for decades, right? And the things that that engine in particular has, that uh, has features that let them make things that they wouldn't be able to make otherwise with the team size that they have. And yeah, maybe it means that uh, certain things are less efficient, but it's enabling them to do something that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And so if you come back to something like Frostbite, I, I, I bet you Frostbite is really freaking good at rendering lots of meshes really fast. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the engineers behind that part of the job did a really good job. But there's all this other stuff that people think of when they think of engine. Because when people think of engines now, they think of Unity and Unreal. Mm-hmm. These big, big pieces of software where you get that have had hundreds of tough, various games made on yeah. them. And they've all probably made little plug and play things that can be shared between people. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of work in making it so that something is uh, just nice to use. Like, does it even does it does it have an editor? I don't I don't have mm-hmm. a, a lens yeah. into what Frostbite's you know level editor system looks like. Did they have one? Did they have to make one? What does that What does that mean? Um, mm-hmm. Because having a nice level editor, people think like you look at commercial game engines these days. That's a given because if you don't have that, you're not getting off the ground. But when you're talking about first party software, that is not a given. Uh, the the tooling can be really rough. And, and, you know, it's funny, this reminds me of some discussions I had with the, uh, a recent game dev that was on Broken Silicon, who now works at Sony Santa Monica, but worked at Treyarch before, and he talked about how whatever, I don't even remember, actually, whatever engine they were using for Call of Duty Cold War, they were like, we were running out of time, 
we needed to have a scene with some Jeeps in it. And it was very easy because we could go to the modern warfare people at Infinity Ward and they're like, oh, we got Jeep physics, you know? And they just came in and basically plugged it right in for uh, one of the levels. And that saved them so much months of work. Yeah. Not needing to build the Jeep engine themselves. Absolutely. And something like, if, if it's a good driving model, that can take months of dedicated engineer or engineer's effort to make that work well. Or honestly, years. I mean, yeah. it's it's so apparent to me which game studios have more lineage in simulating vehicle physics. Sure. Because it's 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 obvious. You oh, know? yeah. And you can like see the difference between like I think the obvious comparison is like what Ubisoft's been doing compared to what Grand Theft Auto's been doing. One of them has been mm-hmm. making cars go around a map way longer than the other one. And it shows because one model is more robust than the other and it feels better. It's more polished. Actually, the funniest one I can think of is horse physics, because I remember, I want to say Assassin's Creed Brotherhood came out in a similar time frame to Red Dead Redemption 1. Mm -hmm. And I remember going from Red Dead Redemption 1 to Assassin's Creed Brotherhood and getting on a horse and being like, what's this joke? (laughs) And you could tell which which studio had five people dedicated to making a horse and which one was like, Oh, we need to add a horse. So yeah. someone do that. Well, that's a good point. Like team size. But matters. now it's really good in Far Cry Six, by the way. It's Far Cry very Six's good horses are excellent. I excellent. Love they those got good horses. at it by now. Yeah. yeah, feels great. Amazing game feel on the. I was horses. actually surprised when I was like, "Oh God, here we go, a Ubisoft horse." And I got <laughs> on it, and I was like, "Ah, oh, they did it. Yeah, good job. It's very good." And if you're looking at Assassin's Creed, I, I thought the horses in Assassin's Creed Odyssey was they were mm. only okay. I think they're better in yes. in Valhalla. Uh, but I have some controversial thoughts on which one of the the modern trilogy is the best. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I do too. There's a lot of Assassin's Creeds that I think were sold short. But let, let let me not turn this into just a discussion about somehow Ubisoft games <laughs> with a, you know, David Obsidian. AC666 writes in and he says, hello, is there any chance you could speak about Destiny 2? Specifically, I played through the free portion of the game myself and I've been and I've seen many stories regarding how the game engine caused severe development issues and taking forever to load maps for editing. Was any of this true? And how have you had to deal with developing game dev tools that not only deliver high quality, but also ease of use? Thank you. Yeah, that was true. There was that article that came out and it was talking about stuff like, oh yeah, this takes eight hours to load, 16 hours to load. By the time I got there, it was better. It took Mm -hmm. four hours to load if you're trying to load the whole darn thing. But I believe those numbers uh, completely. And it was a huge problem. Uh, mm-hmm. That De- Destiny is a franchise that was built on getting a ass load, like a huge number of artists and designers and just sort of crunching human suffering to make a product. And mm-hmm. like, not, 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 not through crunch. They were actually the first destiny, right? Both they, of them, that, both of them. The, like the tools were better for destiny too, but the process was still really rough. It was based about around getting a lot of people to do work because it took a lot of man hours to get something that could be done a lot faster in a different environment mm-hmm. for lots of reasons. I think the tools were a big part of it. Um, there, by the time I got there, some of the people that had, put the, 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 the tools together were, weren't there anymore. And some of the folks there, they didn't really want to dig into the internals. I think maybe because I mean, like, do you, do you really want to dig into something that you don't fully understand? I think is part of the problem. Um, 
if if the expert of a system leaves the company now that system becomes legacy that system now is sort of baked in because you don't want to break it Mm -hmm. if you break it now you're you've crippled the work of over a thousand people like it's it's just non-viable and there was that was a, a culture of erring towards don't do something because what's right what's going on right now at least functions Mm. Right. And so uh, it's a perfectly understandable perspective, especially when you look through at the lens of, hey, the tools are broken and the tools will be broken for the next six hours. And that means a thousand people won't do work for six hours. Right. It's, I, it's funny the way you're describing this. I'm just it, I, I obviously don't have enough of a lens inside of some of these companies to know for sure. But I get the feeling that this is where a lot of dice's problems come from. Maybe. Working on Battlefield, when you see these weird bugs that pop up after a patch, or it's like, why did this take so long to get done when this was just done and fixed overnight? I get the feeling they have a lot of legacy systems they're building on. And, you know, if it works, don't touch it. There's, there's so much we have to get done. I mean, there was code from Marathon in Destiny 2. Just to paint in perspective, Marathon is a game franchise that came out in the 90s running on the Macintosh. Oh, that's that is. Yeah, I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) That is something that like that was that Bungie was originally a Mac developer and Marathon Mm. was a series of like, you know, basically. Oh, right. Yeah. uh, You could call them Doom clones, right? They're first person games. I think they're technically part of Halo's canon, maybe. Don't quote me on that one. But, you know, sci-fi shooters and the code for that, you know, parts of the code for that, like for, for various physics and, or, and, and rendering stuff stuck around because it wasn't broken. There's no reason to replace it. But that's kind of the, the legacy of, of what, what, gets, what gets carried forward in these large projects that have a lot of history behind them or, or with developers that have a large history behind them. Um, you know, the... the Call of Duty engine is based off of Quake 3, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, and Far Cry's engine is based on Crisis 1. <laughs> right. And and so in, in particular with, with Call of Duty, right, they did some experiments where, where they tried to make it in, in uh, Unreal just to see, like, hey, can we put together you know, mm-hmm. a, a similar game in Unreal so we don't have to develop our own engine as much. Don't, it'd be much cheaper to not have to spend that much man hours you know, continuing to improve uh, the Infinity the Infinity Wars engine, or for example, and the end result was that they couldn't get it to feel right because of you know core decisions way down in stacks that you know you can't go looking for. It's so hard mm-hmm. to find why moving the mouse or moving the controller doesn't feel right when, from the surface level, everything looks fine. It's like yeah, no, the the the, the the acceleration curves are correct, and the the when I move the I'm, I'm moving at the right rate, but for some reason maybe the rendering decisions or how it was like when input is processed versus when graphics are rendered these sort of like really tiny small decisions way down down in the stack can bubble up and make something feel different maybe not bad but different enough that you're like nope we're not going to do it. We're going to stick with what we have because what we have is better and we just have to keep on improving it. Not to mention how many of those things you just get used to and it becomes background noise. You don't even realize it's an issue anymore. Like I remember famously the Killzone devs talking about how 
They actually got a lot of praise from some people for Killzone 2 having input lag on the aiming, and everyone thought it was a design choice to make the game feel heavy. <laughs> and then they removed it. They announced they had fixed it for Killzone 3, and everyone was like, well, are the guns not going to feel heavy anymore? And they're like, honestly, guys, most of the heavy feeling was the animations and how we had the guy move his arms. Right. The input lag, we just didn't notice because we were used to playing it for four years and forgot that was still yeah. an issue. And we had, and their brains had gotten so good at, um, like, what is uh, accounting for yeah. the input lag and not being held back it. by it. Absolutely. Compensating yeah. for it, that that it wasn't an issue anymore. And I expect that there was something with older Far Cry games with that too, by the way, because I swear Far Cry 6 just feels less sluggish as well. <laughs> there, there's something there where, like, at least a new Dawn through 3, if I didn't... I, 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 yeah, there's something just off about the aiming. I don't know. Well, we're, we're coming out of an era of triple buffering and, and, right. and we're sort of leaving an era of, of deferred rendering where we're, we're moving to a new hybrid era of, of uh, like newfangled forward rendering. I'm not a graphics expert, so I can't speak much more beyond those buzzwords. But <laughs> um, old games were ran with forward rendering, which is basically you say, hey, render this, render this, render this, render this, and then you're done and it gets sent out. And deferred rendering is like, is, is a multi-stage process. You're like, here's all the things you're going to render render it this way and then get this information and then get this information and then put all that information to make a frame and deferred rendering is really cool because you can start that process on one frame and then it can finish many milliseconds later while mm -hmm. you have started working on the next frame and so you can get a lot of really awesome throughput with that and push lots of frames per second but the latency can be higher in some cases this is uh when when um when Valve was starting to work on on VR content, this was something that they they uh, ran up against. Where in VR content, you need low latency is like the most important mm -hmm. thing. If you're pushing above six milliseconds per frame, you're going to notice. Your brain's going to notice, and you're going to get you're not going to feel good. And so, like, like, like six milliseconds per frame doesn't sound crazy when you're looking at it from like an FPS counter sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But most games that you play you're playing them with a latency of well above 20 milliseconds well above 40 milliseconds if you're talking about you know motion to photon latency and mm -hmm. in, in vr it needs to be way lower for it to work and graphics cards haven't been built for that they haven't been built for that kind of low latency work because that we, we've been building up this rasterization stack that can do a lot of work so long as we mm -hmm. let it take a little extra time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why it's so different to, and I think you're starting to see that with a lot of different video uh, card architectures competing with each other where you see AMDs pulling ahead a lot if it's at a lower resolution because they have infinity cache and, you know, like they have higher clock speeds. These are all things that lead to being able to push out a less complex frame real quickly and get to the next one. Whereas NVIDIA just has tens of thousands of <laughs> shaders. And it's like, it doesn't really get bogged down as easily, but they've found in a lot of CPU tests, you know, when you're like trying to benchmark the fastest CPU, they kind of have to use Radeon cards right now mm. at some channels or like hardware unboxes made this decision uh, often because otherwise there are games where you're just not getting above like 120 with this NVIDIA card, sure. even if it can do double the resolution at the same frame rate or right. something. Right, yeah.
Happy holidays, everybody. Today's piece of content is sponsored by CDKeyOffers.com. This holiday season, I think there's a lot of things you might be shopping for when it comes to software, whether it's the latest PlayStation, Steam, Origin, or other gaming platform games, or if it's a key for Windows 10 Professional, Windows 11, or even Office 2021 to get gaming next year with a new build, or maybe to just stay productive at work. No matter what you need, whether it's for work or play, Play, CD Key Offers has you covered for a reasonable price. And in fact, you can save even more money than what you're seeing on screen if you use these offer codes that help Moore's Laws that if you use them, Broken Silicon gets you 30% off Windows keys. And Die Shrink gets you 3% off everything on the website, including games. So whether you're looking for a piece of software to occupy your leisure time over this holiday season, or you're looking for a reasonably priced Microsoft software, which usually, let's be honest, they're just not, go to cdkeyoffers.com today, use the link in the description, and, well... Have a good holiday season where you don't overspend thanks to cdkeyoffers.com. So actually that does transition here. Chris C writes in, thank you for your time. I bought a new PC recently and I'm starting to wonder when games will make the most of my new hardware. Is, in quotes, optimization a trade-off between coding to get the most out of mainstream mid-range hardware like a GTX 1060? Versus coding for the latest and greatest RTX 3090 and 6900 XT. Like, how much can you speak to what goes into optimizing? You know, is it a lowest common denominator much of the time or or is it something else? So there is a lowest common denominator aspect to this. Um, I'd say right now it's PC is the lowest common denominator, not because there aren't amazing PC parts, but because nobody has those amazing PC parts. Uh, so you're looking and saying, what is our target min spec for this game? And you say, okay, mm-hmm. it's a 1060 is actually a pretty reasonable target, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I think a, a game developer making a, a game right now saying, like, yeah, we want this to be able to run at least from a 1060. That's pretty reasonable. And that's going to determine the ceiling of most of the graphics API calls that you're going like, like there's, there's, there's different specs that you can, you can uh, request different versions of APIs that cards support and APIs are getting better at being able to like do plug and play. You'll see games with like, you know, DirectX 11, 12 and Vulcan as options. Um, but those higher end targets then become like optional add-ons to your spec. So when you're looking at something like ray tracing, right, mm-hmm. that's being treated right now as a sweetener. Because yes. most of your audience does not have a card that can do ray tracing or can, doesn't have a card that does ray tracing well. Um, so there's no point in, in it being there for that min spec machine. You're not going to target for it. There's, there's no point in optimizing, I guess, the art style Bingo. nor yeah. any of you know any of the base level graphics around effective efficiently using ray tracing. Exactly. That's a huge piece of it because you want the game to look like the game you've made or very close to it no matter the settings mm. and that's going to affect technical decisions you use to implement or whether or not to implement various features. And if we move into a, a future many years from now, well I don't know about mm-hmm. many, but years from now where you look at the min specs like yes that can run you know that that's got ray tracing hardware and we can use ray tracing in it we're going to see games that look different on a, as a, on a fundamental level 
than games that are coming out now. Games that are coming out now, they look great. They look amazing. And the 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 when it's hard to complain. It's hard you know? to complain. And when and when you have the the ray tracing turning on and you can see your like the reflection of things in puddles and cars and and glass and it looks really cool, uh that's gonna be it, it looks great, but it's not gonna be done at the most efficient way possible because it still needs to look reasonably good when all those things are off. And so you're gonna have competing processes that like you're doing screen space reflections almost all the time still because doing um, RTX reflections on all surfaces is completely unviable. It's not going to work. And screen space can get you most of the way there for a lot of diffuse materials. So, or low specular materials, because you don't need a mirror finish and you're not going to really notice what ray tracing can give you for reflections unless it's a mirror finish, like it's a, like a puddle. Right, and you know, a funny example I'll bring up is Resident Evil 8 famously has ray tracing, uh, even in the Xbox series and PlayStation 5 version. Mm -hmm. And I remember this one scene where, what is it? I think her name's Dimitrescu, is talking in a phone in front of a mirror. It's like, it was in a trailer, it was a famous scene where she's like talking about a ritual and you're like hiding outside, looking in a window and listening to this crazy thing she's saying. And I remember people saying how impressive the ray tracing looks inside of the house. And like, look at, you can see her throw things and the mirror falls over and it reflects everything. Mm -hmm. And then the devs were like, actually, that mirror didn't use ray tracing for the reflection <laughs> because that was an integral part of the plot right. in the PS4 and Xbox One version. Can't do ray tracing. Right. So actually, the mirrors aren't doing ray tracing, right. but the things outside of the mirrors are, so they look shinier. Yeah, yeah. And you're not going to see those kinds of technical decisions. You're not going to see the same kinds of like, cinematographic uh, uh, decisions to like look at reflections, focus on reflections as part of the shot. That's something you see all the time in movies because they can abuse mm -hmm. how light works in real life. And once mm -hmm. like the, the default, the base setting for lighting in a game is it works like real light, you're going to see a whole, a lot of different things. Scenes are going to look different because they're going to be lit differently. And they're going to, they're going to feel different because they're going to be, you know, cameras are going to be placed in or, or uh, told to behave in particular ways that are enabled because of the way reflections and lighting are going to be working. But again, that's not for a while. Uh, we're not going to get path traced games for years and years, I would expect. Right. And that actually leads into a reader mail that I had lower in the discussion that I'm just going to ask now. Jonathan Wagner writes in, he says, hi, Tom and Taylor. Hardware accelerator ray tracing is the hot new tech, but it reminds me of the S3 Verge 3D decelerator days. Do you think the ray tracing hardware in today's cards and consoles is fast enough for good software? Or will we need hardware performance increases to see effects and visuals that raster can't deliver? And I think this is an interesting question because the way I would ask it, actually, if I'm understanding Jonathan's question correctly, is, look, we understand we're programming for the lowest common denominator, which actually most devs I ask say PlayStation 4. <laughs> like that 1.8 teraflop console from 2013 is, we want this to at least run in 1080p30 on that. Yeah. And then everything else we build from there. That's missing more than a few of the recent components added to video cards. Right. Like, let's say that wasn't the problem. Let's say the lowest common denominator was the Series X or PS5 mm -hmm. or even something a little weaker than those, like a 6600, you know, a $330 graphics card. Or I would even go as far as to say, like, the Series X 
or the upcoming Navi 24. I think it'll be called the 6500 XT. This is something that's, you know, around four teraflops, you know, those types of things. You know, maybe that's how strong integrated graphics will be in a year or two. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have to worry about the PS4 and everything else, how good could we run ray tracing on these kind of next-gen APUs like the Series S? And are the PS5 and Series X, even if we remove these a- these weaker APUs, are-, are these strong enough to run like full ray tracing if it was fully optimized for them in, in any reasonable way? Or is it still, is- does it have to be an extra effect because these consoles and even most mid-range graphics cards now still really aren't capable of that? I think the first hint of that is from the ps5 first party games that we've seen so far mm-hmm. so like ratchet and clank looks awesome and this they've made decisions that are uh, using ray tracing because they know it's there they can work to that min spec and then spider-man looks awesome and has really really good ray tracing because they were able to optimize specifically for that piece of hardware and specifically for that like, like that form of scene of large buildings in new york city and so yeah, there's, there's examples of what this can look like, but those games aren't running on a PC and they don't have to cater to lower common denominators. And then when you talk about something like the Xbox Series X versus the Xbox Series S, the Xbox Series S is a lot less powerful than the Series X. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, ray tracing scales with you know, raw compute power on AMD systems. So when you have a lot less raw compute, you, do you really want to spend those mm-hmm. limited budget on ray tracing to the same degree, you're not going to get something that looks very good. Ray tracing is very expensive. It takes a lot of memory. And mm-hmm. uh, Which the Series S only has 10 gigs of RAM total. Right, and it is, everything's a little bit less. So I think you're going to see decisions where, in, where you, when you need to cater to a much wider audience, you're going to see, like, like, like we've said before, you know, ray tracing is going to be a sweetener. It's going to be something where if it's off, there's a fallback. And that means that you have to optimize for both 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 solutions as opposed to just a single option. Um, yeah, does that answer that question? Do you think, or is, is, there, is there more well, behind? There? I think you kind of explained why it's. I think it it, it it kind of leads into the direct question, which is just like kind of explaining why maybe we haven't seen the most impressive things in everything all the time yet. Yeah. But is it's like if we had perfect software, where 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 I'm. You know, not only was it optimized for the PS5, but maybe the PS5 was the min spec. Sure. And it's yeah. like, this is the minimum, maybe not even in 1440p, 1080p, yeah. 60 is all it has to be able to do it. Do you think we're the hardware we have now is ready for like full ray tracing yet in any appreciable way? Or is it, we still need a lot stronger hardware. It's not just the software sure. that needs to get updated. Well, I, I think that the, the, so the hardware that we have right now can do some really impressive stuff. When you're looking at uh, like the 2080 and up on on PC stuff, like 2080 mm-hmm. was pretty pretty good, and you're seeing performance similar ish to that for the the the, the, the consoles, and so it, it's obviously able to do stuff that we couldn't do in raster, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, whether it's doing that in a way that looks good enough compared to the performance penalty that you get is a different question on this type on this current hardware yeah right? yeah like do you want something that looks gorgeous at 30 hertz or do you want something that looks still pretty darn great at 120 hertz like that's sort of the the the, the question that you you have to ask yourself um and different games are going to make different decisions about that so i think if you talk about what we have right now as like 
it's the min spec, you're going to see some ridiculously gorgeous games running on that kind of hardware, you know, at 1080p 30. It's going to look super cool. And mm. it's, but the, 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 the hardware that it, that, that software will be targeting is going to be a lot more powerful and able to do mm -hmm. a lot more with that same software stack. So, yeah, I think if I were to, and how I'm interpreting what you're saying, look, if we could make the Series X and PS5 the minimum spec, there's probably more we could do efficiently, but it still probably wouldn't be like next gen ray tracing performance just yet because it's still basically meant to use it for specific parts of the rendering pipeline, not the whole thing. Not the whole know? thing. Yeah. I mean, like what full ray tracing means is a big loaded question. Oh, I know. I, right? I'm noticing that. What does that even mean? What and Metro Exodus mean? claims it's full ray tracing. Right. And, and it runs pretty well. So I'm like, why do these <laughs> other devs? And, and you can use rays for doing a lot of stuff. You can use it for reflections. You can use it for global illumination, which is my personal favorite. I think good Global illumination looks amazing in real time. Uh, I, I mm -hmm. prefer I would prefer prefer that to um, reflections, honestly. And or you can use it for shadows, or you can use it for just you know rasterization, as it were. Obviously, when you're talking about rasterizing with ray tracing, like you just like you're looking at a wall that's neutrally lit, and you see something, and that's something that. If you're to do that in a ray tracer or in a path tracer, like you're talking hundreds, maybe a thousand rays per pixel to get something that looks good, mm -hmm. right? And so that's a huge amount of processing. And I don't think we're going to see a pure path traced game outside of like Minecraft, I think, claims to be fully path traced. Mm -hmm. um, but that's probably with an aggressive amount of uh, AI denoising. Um, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, so you're not going to see a fully path-traced game that looks like Call of Duty in a really, 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 really long time. Um, you, we might get there. We might have a complete paradigm shift where instead of having any raster hardware at all, we have, well, no, because we're going to have shaders You're going to need some, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but like the, the, the ray tracing hardware could get to the point where it makes sense to path-trace something. Why not just turn it on? It looks amazing. And if you can mm. get to the point where it looks amazing and it can run at a reasonable resolution at a reasonable frame rate, which I mean, the resolutions we're at right now, gosh, guys, why do you need more than 1440p at a 27 inch screen? It's plenty. More than that is just uh, more than necessary. Looking at a 4K television, you know, from a reasonable sitting distance for the size of your panel, there's more pixels than your eyes can resolve. There's no reason to get a better panel. Uh, so when we're talking about more resolution, it's what we have right now is more than enough for. for I would for say at least acuity. until we have so much more hard uh, hardware that we can, we need more pixels to see the difference, which I think most people don't understand is like in 4K, if you're playing, yeah, if you're playing 1440p ultra, I find it's, you can't really tell the difference between high and ultra, sure. except for like two key settings. Yeah. So like, you know, uh, that's what I, but I think that where we are now with the level of almost photorealism, I feel like I, I agree that between 1440p and 4k is all that's required to render the fidelity we have now. Yeah. And there's, I think there's a, there's something to be said that like more pixels isn't necessarily better than higher quality pixels. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a threshold for that, right? No one wants to play a 720p game with beautiful pixels because all you're going to see are those big chunky pixels. But mm-hmm. when you're not able to see individual pixels anymore and you have, you know, very, very good um, anti-aliasing techniques, right? Anti-aliasing has gotten so much better in the last decade. Oh, it's, it's absurd. ridiculous. Uh, it's honestly comical when I think about how much effort in optimizing my graphics settings just about six years ago was balancing the settings with how much MSAA I wanted. Totally. Which was a lot, by the right, way. No, yeah. I wanted a lot. <laughs> you, you want the jaggies to go away. And now with, you know, you know, temporal anti-aliasing has issues. Certainly, it's got artifacts. But I would happily pay... I'll happily deal with those minor artifacts for how nice that image looks because it looks so much better than what we were used to just a decade ago. You know, I actually, before we get into any of that, want to make sure I ask this question. It's it's something I thought of talking to the last guest, which was an indie dev. You know, do you, you know, we, we, we just talked about how raster is probably always going to be there and pre-baked lighting if you can afford to do it just looks the best and uses the least amount of performance like do you think that because right now ray tracing is like oh this triple a game is ray tracing look at this budget we can afford to put it in do you think that there's a chance that actually ray tracing will be a hallmark of a cheaply made game in 10 years you know what i mean because really that for me the biggest asset of ray tracing is getting you consistent lighting that doesn't look like the best but looks it far better than what an indie studio is probably capable of otherwise. And it might just be capable of allowing a two-man team make a game that doesn't look like, you know, maybe not Battle, you know, Battlefield 2042, but maybe it looks like Bad Company 2 and two people made it. Well, I think I think it's even... I don't know if it's going to be like a, a cheap game, but I do think that... And cheap sounds derogatory, yeah, you know what I mean. I think the, the effect is going to look great if it's, if it's, you know, lighting good-looking art. Right, that's going to come down to like art styles can be really important. Um, I do think you're going to see a lot more ray tracing and ray tracing effects in indie games because it's something that you can turn on in Unreal mm-hmm. or in Unity. You just click a button, and hey, now it's ray traced and it looks really cool. And when you do it that way, like with global illumination or something like that, you get some really rich, lovely lighting and shadows uh, that can. Uh, like for like low poly art styles are really really popular right now because they're relatively uh effective or not effective efficient to make right if you can make something that's less complicated you're spending less time making that thing you can make more things and so simple uh well thought out art is always going to be a staple of indie developers because they have fewer people and can't spend you know a month on one character um and ray tracing and global illumination that's real time can make those relatively simple characters sing, look really nice. Or I, I, I've seen stuff that's like, it looks like a little diorama. It looks mm-hmm. like little paper craft people walking around because they like, they realize that they could make it look literally like paper mm-hmm. running around a little diorama scene that looks like it's lit by like a candle or whatever. And you can do that because you can do it in real time. It looks amazing. And it didn't take that much developer time for the individual person putting together that scene mm-hmm. to make that look amazing. And if you're trying to pull something like that off with, you know, a previous generation of technology, it would have been a nightmare. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, 
like physically based rendering was like the big change of last gen moving from uh textures and a texturing uh system that was dependent on lighting decisions made prior to the game running are you familiar with with the difference between pbr rend- uh rendering and non-pbr rendering no not the top of my head it's a little complicated but basically like prior to physically based rendering um things like ambient light or shadows or ambient occlusion were often baked right down into diffuse textures applied to models. Oh no, yeah, I understand. I understand that. Yeah, that that's what they would do, and that's why there would be games if they're really old and you move something around in a way they didn't expect you to. The shadows just <gasps> moved around the room well, for so, no yeah, reason. The, the, and that's like the shadow maps. Shadow maps are a whole other layer to this, but there's there's stuff that uh, that you do now. There's there's things called ambient occlusion maps that or occlusion maps that are applied to a model. So if you have like um, uh, layers of of fabric in a in a model mm. that are overlapping each other. Uh, your your occlusion layer will have more dark uh, pixels on its little texture where that under where, where that fold is in the fabric. Mm-hmm. Or in the, if you have a cowl, like the texture in the back behind the head is going to be you know very uh, very black in the occlusion map. And then at runtime, the shaders use that information as like extra don't light this markers mm. right so if you shine a light right at it it's going to illuminate because you know, there's a light coming right at it but if you pull the light away it's going to get darker faster because and it's approximating you know uh proper gi within the context of this character and so that's sort of like we, we've pulled a layer of baking out and put it one layer back Right. And that's mm-hmm. that's sort of the, the progression of how our lighting systems have gotten better and better and better. We are faking fewer and fewer things. We're pulling the mm-hmm. baked out assets one step back, one step back, one step back. Um, and it's going to continue to pull back and pull back until we're like things like Nanite now is doing some pretty cool stuff where you don't have to think too much about what the mesh is going to be or what it's going to be uh, at runtime. You don't have to worry about LODs. You just make a really high poly mesh that looks great. You drop it in, and it appears to be working. Uh, all of the demos that Epic are showing, like the, the Matrix demo that, we, that we're going to talk about, there's a couple questions about that downstream, and it looks really cool. And it's really well, showing well, let's get into really it stuff. now, though. Yeah, oh. I actually had, I had several bullets of questions in the chamber there. I wasn't sure which direction to go, but l- l- let's go right into that. Yeah. Joe writes in and he says, Hi, Tom and Taylor. Did you see the Matrix Unreal Engine 5 demo? I read from Digital Foundry that it wasn't well optimized due to time constraints. I don't know if you've worked with Unreal Engine 5 or not, but if so, how much performance do you think was left on the table in the Matrix demo? And you told me about it before we started recording. I did check it out on my PS5 yeah. and because I wanted to see it run on a console. I have the previous demo, the one where she's like, this main character is fighting a robot in the desert. I have that running on my PC. And I, it's in, it was actually, I'll just give my impression. Uh, if you have a Series X, a PC, or a PlayStation, you can download this. So that's actually very cool to be able to compare them all running this demo. Yeah. Uh, but it parts of it look photorealistic. Totally. Parts of it, do not no, <laughs> which is weird, but it all it's 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 a it's odd. It was kind of impressive, and I will say the part where they let you walk around after the demo's over and like fly around the city. Am I? I feel like there's a ton of motion blur hiding things moving in the distance. Maybe I mean so there's temporal 
super sampling happening in that stack, right? That's that was part of that thing. So that might be sort mm -hmm. of, sort of part of that. There's some temporal wizardry going on in the distance to make things less pixelated. Um, so it's also not running at a particularly high frame rate. No, it's you know it's it's quote unquote at thirty and it dips right. Like it's a mm -hmm. very heavy scene. I'm not. I I don't. I don't. I haven't you know loaded that thing up and inspected it. I don't know what's causing uh, a lot of that overhead. I I would hanker a guess that it's lumen. Lumen's mm -hmm. lumen's really expensive in terms of frame time. Um, it can do some really cool stuff, uh, but it's it's not a perfect solution. I would say. Um, I don't know. I haven't. I haven't watched that Digital Foundry uh, video yet. I mean, I, I need to to uh, actually wrap my head around it, give it a watch. I was very impressed with what I saw overall, and and I, I think the parts where it falls down a little bit is mostly just the parts that fell down the most for me were just like general character body animations. Like the Uncanny mm -hmm. Valley is just alive and well, and it's just going to keep getting weirder as we get closer and closer and maybe eventually we crack it and our brains is like, Oh, that's just a human in front of me. Um, and there were definitely some moments in like that pre-roll going into the demo where you're looking mm -hmm. at Keanu Reeves. You're like, Oh, I think that actually might be CG Keanu right now. And you're not that's sure. the part that actually impressed me the most was when they uh, overlaid Keanu Reeves's young face yeah. over his old his his current face that obviously he's aged so they could show him when he was younger talking. That actually for me was the most impressive part. I was like, whoa, that completely changes what Hollywood can do. Absolutely. Which, let's be clear, this was mostly an ad for. Let's be. I think that I'm going to be honest. My my thoughts about the Unreal Engine 5 Matrix demo is what a brilliant marketing technique by Unreal to make oh, yeah. everyone not just look at the Matrix, or like cross-marketing, but also just tell games, uh, not game, but Hollywood Studios, hey, use our demo or use our engine to make your movies. Totally. Look what we're doing. Yeah. And, and they threw this into the Job's question about Digital Foundry saying that there's time constraints. Look, if they made this quickly, which it sounds like they just threw it together because of a marketing deal. That actually impresses me more yeah. that it looked this good. Yeah. And I think that's their point, actually, is imagine what you could do if you took a few months to work on this guy. Totally. We'd put this together in a week or two. Yeah, I thought that the facial capture and performance was better than what we saw in, like, the Star Wars uh, movies that we've seen and, like, mm -hmm. and in The Mandalorian. Oh, yeah. Like, for sure, like, looked great. Uh, it, it helps that you're looking at, you know, Trinity, who doesn't emote and was wearing sunglasses, <laughs> right? True. It helps a lot. That's a very good point, yeah. <laughs> so they, they, they didn't have, uh, it wasn't a very challenging facial capture to then to, to render, but um, it, it really did look very good. Uh, I think the, the full body animation is still the weak point in uh, the technology stack that we have right now. Yeah. Um, I thought like when they have that pre-roll scene where uh, Trinity's like walking around and you can like, you just like the, the fact that it's a not a real body screams at you because it's so obvious. And the part that's even stranger is that you know it's a fake head on the fake body, but the fake head looks way better. So it looks even stranger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there are so many things in game development now where it's starting to become... 
you know, a victim of its own success at making certain aspects better. Like for for me during the 360 and PS3 gen, the biggest one was fire. You had these 3D, almost human looking people and then a fire would pop up and you'd be like, whoa, that looks like a PS2 fire compared sure. to that model. Or yeah. You know, and I think now a lot of it is the animations in some studios or even the acting. Honestly, the worst offender that I had that still keeps coming to mind for me is Metro Exodus, where you have these excellent graphics and animations. And then you have a guy come in and go, hey there, we need to go. Like, it's like, all right, so your graphics are so good that your lip syncing and voice and your actual acting is making this not look good anymore. Totally. What? Yeah, the, the whole package needs to be cohesive. Otherwise, it falls down. Something is always going to be, you know, not much stronger than its weakest component. And... We've had a couple generations. Like each generation, I think, is better at one thing or the other. And you see movements of of games getting really good at getting performance capture, getting really good at telling a good story. Games are better at that than they ever have been. But there's also games that are dreadful at it still, right? <laughs> and I, there's 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 B level performances in every medium. And I don't think mm-hmm. the ga- yeah. games yeah, games aren't going to be plenty. Yeah. Uh, to answer uh, Job's question a little more directly. This calls back to a previous question about optimization. Mm -hmm. Optimization is about making sacrifices for things you can't see so that you can buff up something that you do see. Mm -hmm. That's the fundamental thing. Nothing is free. There's There's generally no magic. Sometimes someone did something silly and you can change a bit of code and things run faster. That totally exists. Mm -hmm. That's not always something that's happening. Sometimes, more, more often, it's something in an art asset. Like sometimes you have a subcontractor that was asked to make a brick wall and they return a brick wall with 2 million polys in it. And you're like, okay, well, I wanted to instance that wall a thousand times in this city. That's not going to work. We need to be like this. This is, this mesh is non-viable. We need something else. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that's a scenario where that asset's gone through a pipeline and it's shown up in the game. And now the game's running very poorly and you need to figure out why. And then you realize, like, oh, oh, this brick right here, this small brick that's scattered throughout the the, the ground, has twelve thousand tries in it for no good reason. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a case of like, well, you make it so that it's got, you know, six, and then you move on because now you've just sh- shaved milliseconds off of your frame time. So, well, and sometimes the opposite happens, right? Where it's like we didn't realize the character would be close to this object, and it looks real bad. Sure, close to it exactly. And so now you need to be like, okay, well, in this particular scene, we need more, need more detail in these particular assets up front. How do we pay for that? Can we turn things off? Like that's what occlusion culling is all about, right? Mm-hmm. We're not looking at this, or we are, we can't see it because something's in the way. Don't render it so that we can render other things with higher fidelity. Um, yeah, so like those are examples of techniques, but when you have all of these techniques going already, optimization at that point is about, you know, stealing from Peter to pay Paul, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, where can you turn something down so you can shave, you can get a millisecond back so you can spend that millisecond on something else. And if the, the least amount of hardware is you're developing for, means the more you can be like, hey, the PS5 is actually really good at running this type of mesh, so we actually don't need to turn down this one. Specifically, we're going to turn down this one feature here because it gives us so much more. The problem then is when you go to PC, I mean, God, the amount of combinations out there of just even, forget the CPUs, graphics architectures means that 
on some hardware, a setting you may run ultra, the same performance almost as high, but then on another architecture, it just crushes your performance. Absolutely. So, yeah, software is software running on different hardware is going to do something different. Maybe not by a, 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 an amount that's appreciable, but it, it can be significant. And I think that you're referencing perhaps a question about the hardware unbox video. Right. Let me, yeah, let me transition right, in right into that, though. Uh, John Kim writes in, do you have any insight into the somewhat odd AMD versus NVIDIA GPU performance in the new Halo Infinite game, where AMD's GPUs seem to get a sizable boost in some scenes that push it on average ahead of NVIDIA's GPUs? And in other scenes, the NVIDIA cards are on average 10% better in performance. Yeah, and there were some scenes where, like the AMD GPUs were like wildly better than in other scenes compared sure. to it, which surprised me, by the way, because I've started playing Halo Infinite, and my only opinion is my 3070 is running it fine at the settings I've selected. Right. You know, when I saw the frame rates in those benchmarks, I was like, what? However, I will say this to everybody. I've only played some of the multiplayer and just started the campaign. And I've been told that in some of the open sections, that's where it crushes your performance that I don't think I've gotten to. Sure. Having said that, though, let, let's have you directly get into John's question here. Yeah, so I was sort of alluding to this earlier where like different, the, the same software running on different hardware is going to do some, might do something different. And AMD and NVIDIA have, pretty different hardware they're capable of very similar things um I, I would expect that the differences that that are happening here have to do with infinity cache where because they're doing something a little bit simpler in one scene uh and they don't have to uh they're getting more cache hits where they're they're looking for data that data is already in the cache so they can use it immediately like i said before a cache hit is a uh, hundred times faster than a cache miss because when you go looking for data and it's not in your cache, you then need to go get it from RAM. And when you're look, waiting for that to happen, nothing is happening. You're spinning on cycles doing nothing useful because you need that piece of information next. And so when you have a lot more cache, you have a lot more cache hits. And when you aren't needing to pull in lots and lots and lots of different uh, pieces of texture data, for example, uh, you can probably render something really quickly in those sorts of scenes, where in more complex scenes where you have a lot more materials, a lot more different types of shaders, uh, maybe more uh, things like uh, transparencies also it can be a huge killer in, of performance because you know alpha testing is really expensive. Yeah, so like one one GPU might be able to handle that kind of a load way more effectively. And it, it, it doesn't have, can't go as high, but it won't go as low. It'll be more consistent in the middle. That's totally, I mean, I'm not surprised that there's a lot of variability between different kinds of hardware for the same software. It makes a lot of sense. Well, yeah. And it's, you know, if you look at like comparison, the PS5 specs to the Series X, they're both RDNA2 architecture, you know, that there's an 18% teraflop dis difference, but then like one of them, the PS5 is running the cache at a faster speed because the whole thing's running at a higher clock speed. Right. Xbox has more bandwidth, but it's not like 50% more right. and it's segmented. There, there, it's no surprise that when you look at, a, um, honestly, like 90% of these digital foundry PS5 Series X comparisons, on average, they get the fr same frame rate, but then you go in one hall, Xbox is 3% faster, PS5's Five percent faster than another. Yeah, you know, it's like, but but when I compare the thirty ninety, I'm looking at it right sure. now compared to the sixty nine hundred XT two cards that I think are fairly evenly matched. The thirty ninety's pixel rate, one hundred and ninety gigapixels a second. Sixty nine hundred XT two hundred and eighty eight. Wow, 
the That's like 50% 30, better almost. Yeah. Yeah. The 3090s texture rate, 556 gigatexels a second, the 6900. 720. Now, is that that's that's just in a particular scene that they were they were uh, benchmarking in this? No, I'm just looking at raw theoretical oh, I got you. specs. Okay, gotcha. However, so you're looking at two things where the 6900 XTs is like 50 percent better. However, teraflops, well, <laughs> 3090, 36 teraflops versus 23. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you know, tera- uh, and it has like almost double the bandwidth for the 3090 as well, but. Technically, the Infinity Cache, I believe, can get above a terabyte a second of bandwidth for just that amount of the cache. Right. So, like, uh, it's a, it's a, people were, were talking about uh, teraflops, you know, back when the, the PS, mm-hmm. PS4 and the new Xbox was coming. I was like, oh, we're going to have, we have so many more teraflops. It's going to be amazing. But teraflops doesn't translate directly into gaming performance because you're not just doing the same thing you're not mining ethereum not, in games. exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's how i explained it i'm like oh, it's really good if you're mining ethereum on these consoles but otherwise it's just one aspect of the performance totally and like the software that's running on these cards in the form of shaders is getting really robust it's getting very mm-hmm. complicated it's a lot more than just you know how many floats can you multiply and that scales perfectly across every workload no, like workloads change from game to game. Mm-hmm. Workloads change from scene to scene. Uh, e- e- even, uh, and if you load balance for one particular architecture in a different architecture, it might not work as well. Because, I mean, we brought this up previously, different, different kinds of architecture have made different decisions about, you know, pixel fill rates or whatever. Uh, targeting what they think is correct, targeting what they think is going to be uh, something that gives good performance generally. And sometimes a game comes along and does something weird that the hardware developers didn't anticipate or didn't expect, weren't, weren't accounting for. And so they're demanding more from the hardware and the hardware is like, I can't do it that fast. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and I haven't noticed the issue, I suspect, because this game on PC has really, really good dynamic resolution implementation. And some mm. games, by the way, a, an example of a game that has horrible implementation Battlefield 2042, that dynamic res is so, it might as well be this runs your game in 720p. I don't know what it's trying to do. And it's so bizarre because on console, it works fine. I don't know why, but I'm constantly just confused by why dynamic res on PC doesn't seem to be more of a standard. So much performance is wasted. Like the way I have, I think my Halo graphics settings on PC Infinite are like, I don't know. I have it in 4K, and I think I've set it to dynamic scale between 110 and 118 hertz, and I'm mostly high ultra settings. And then I can't tell. It looks sharp to me, and it's always above 110. Right. So, like, why don't more PC games do this? And that, that was a, and I basically just skipped over, but that was a question Uum wrote in and asked, you know, like, why, why do you think we don't see this consistent implementation of dynamic res on PC when basically all console games do it now. And by the way, to go back to our earlier thing about resolution, I don't think the argument matters anymore if you have dynamic res. It's at whatever it can do at the time. Right. It's whatever it can do at the time. And if you have good enough temporal reconstruction techniques to fill in the gaps, you can get some pretty impressive image quality out of a resolution that's going up and down like pretty Mm -hmm. aggressively. Um, that's That's a good question. Um, I think a, a, a portion of it is that these dynamic res systems are probably uh, 
one of the things that is tuned pretty closely mm. for a piece of hardware. And so they're coming in and saying, okay, so our, our, we know our max and min, and then we say we want to fit everything in this narrow band for the PS4, for example. And mm. they go and make sure that everything fits in that narrow band. But again, and then hardware is really different in different places, so it's hard to ensure that the narrow band is mm. working. I think because a lot of that's an algorithm, so it's trying to predict and do things correctly. And it maybe for my Ampere graphics card, Battlefield, it works fine on the consoles because those are RDNA two, and it's just having a hard time calculating the right resolution to not lose frame rate for me. Maybe I don't have a good lens. I can't answer this question, you know, right. directly from my own knowledge. So this is largely speculation. I have a little bit of experience just playing with dynamic resolution systems. The first time I played with it was in Dishonored two which did an absolute piss poor job at delivering <laughs> mm -hmm. dynamic res on PC because it just went straight in the toilet and stayed there while running horribly. So like battlefield. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I was running on a, you know, lower spec. I was like, I think I was running on a, uh, 980, right? So mm -hmm. it, the 980 was struggling a little bit, probably with the settings I'd chosen. And that game came out pretty rough in the, for, for dishonored too. But generally, what a, what a dynamic resolution system is doing behind the scenes, if I if if I if I if what Valve is doing in VR carries mm -hmm. to what you know consoles do, I'm going to assume that it does because it makes sense. Um, what's happening is that you're never going all out and trying to use 100% of your GPU's resources uh, because you're trying to aim for like 95%. If you're at 95%, you're probably at the right resolution, quote unquote. And if you start going trending down towards you know, 80%, then you can probably get more resolution. And so the next frame is like you, you go one tick up, right? And so you're running at a higher res. And then if you get something was like, okay, we just rendered something at 99% utilization, then you start dropping aggressively mm -hmm. to lower resolutions, so like hoping that you make frame time in the next frame so that you don't get a hitch. Right, so you're, you're trying to make sure your frame passing is really good, um, and so that means by necessity you're leaving performance on the table because you're not running all out all the time, mm -hmm. because you need to have that headroom for ticking upwards, so that you know to drop your resolution down. Well, you know, and I think a large part of good management is deciding what min maxing. If there's always going to be bugs, it's knowing what content to focus on and what bugs to focus Absolutely. on well. And this was a main thing I wanted to discuss with you because I, I expect that you're someone that could really speak to this quite a bit. Um, so I want to compare and contrast just a little bit Battlefield 2042 state to Halo Infinite because now that I've played both a decent amount, I I can't help but notice that I see it, and, you know, I'll throw Call of Duty in there as well, which I haven't played the latest Call of Duty, but I'm noticing just a lot of criticism and issues with every shooter that's come out this fall. Yep. There's honestly a part of me that wonders, is this, you know, most of the development for games that came out last year was done outside of the pandemic. And I'm wondering if this is just the fall where we go, everything has problems because of COVID, and, and unfortunately. But, but some games seem to have handled it better. You know, like 
for example, it to me appears clear when you play Battlefield 2042 that they really were intending to have a campaign. There's like an opening five-minute cinematic explaining mm-hmm. the universe and almost main characters introduced. And then they're like, all right, go play multiplayer. Uh-huh. I'm like, they clearly meant to have a campaign, and they cut that. Mm-hmm. That was the decision made at some point because they knew they wouldn't get it done in time. And you look at Halo, they cut the co-op. And you can tell they cut co-op somewhat last minute because when you load into single player, I don't remember what the phrasing is, but it's literally like all players ready to start. All players is a single player only game. Right. <laughs> you know, but it feels like to me, Infinite made the better decisions because they're like, hey, we're going to have a few maps that work well. It's going to be polished. We're going to cut co-op that'll come out later. Whereas Battlefield tried to have 13 maps, a bunch of stuff, and it just didn't pan out at launch. Yeah. I, I don't know how much you can speak to like the decisions made between this and like stuff you've had to do and your and just kind of your thoughts on how effective the games that have come out this fall may have been by COVID. Yeah, so that's a pretty interesting topic. So let's start with some terminology. So the process that when you're trying to close a game out and you're trying to fix bugs, uh, those bugs go through what's called a triage process where a team of, you know, the, the lead engineers, the lead QA people, people leading the project, look at every bug that's coming in from the QA team and they say, okay, what's this? How important is this bug? Does it go to the top of the list? Does it go to the middle of the list? Are we going to fix it at all? Are we going to fix it in a patch later? Or we just don't care? So you're mm-hmm. looking at every bug from that lens. Uh, when I say that triage occurs in a room, triage mm-hmm. probably doesn't occur in a room anymore. Triage occurs on a Zoom call. And that's pretty awful. And then when you're talking to a QA team, your QA team probably isn't in a room together anymore either they're on zoom once a day and then they're trying to work uh, independently it's the same thing with your development team and i think a lot of people a lot of people uh, have enjoyed working from home working from home can be really awesome for mm-hmm. a certain kind of developer it's been really awesome for me i have a really great home office that i've been able to set up in a point really well i'm really comfortable in it i don't mind spending all day in it other people mm-hmm. are working on their dining room tables other people are working in their closets and it's awful and they don't have a good time. They can't focus. Their kids are home and they need to, they need help with homework or whatever. And I think to say that COVID didn't affect those people is obviously false. So there's some right. people that had a really good time and were more effective. There are some people that had a really bad time and were way less effective. <clears throat> I think that though, there's another element here, which is coordinating these people. And I think by and large, coordinating large groups of people is a little bit harder when everyone's yeah. working from home and, you know, making huge games. It's all about coordination. So to bring this back to, to Halo, making basically a decision of let's do less better versus mm-hmm. Battlefield. Like, like we got to have all the things on the box. And they end up producing something that's, that feels not as good, even though it has more widgets. I think that come, it comes down to triage, where basically if you were to describe those two things as a triage process, you need to make these decisions pretty far back. You need to be like, mm-hmm. our lead time is eight months, our lead time is six months. And you need to say, if you're working on Halo, it's like, okay, I can see that this part of it isn't ready. This map is, doesn't really work right. We need more polish, for example. We're not ready to release this. Or I'm, I'm sure co-op was probably a little more last minute. But 
Uh, Maybe some giant bug popped yeah. up, or there's some huge performance issue they didn't foresee, and they're like, let's, "We'll just we'll fix it later. We'll just we'll polish the campaign. This will come out in quarter we can, one. Yeah, we can just turn it off." And so, when you make the decision to to remove stuff you need to work on earlier in the process, that removes a whole bunch of bugs that came with those features, right? That came with that content, and so now your bug list is smaller. You get the really important stuff done sooner and then you can work on the less important stuff and the less important stuff is where you feel the polish where things mm -hmm. feel really excellent to use move around everything just feels smooth you don't notice problems if you don't do that and you want to get all your widgets done well maybe you fixed all the big problems on all your widgets mm -hmm. but there's still the whole host of smaller problems that are still there so well one crazy one by the way in battlefield 2042 the one that almost drove my brother to return the game except we figured out the we fixed it is there's something called raw mouse input sure if that toggle is on it might randomly make you look up or down really and it seemed to happen to him more often oh, God. and what we figured out is if you turn that off it goes away the reason a lot of people online haven't noticed that doesn't fix it i suspect is because that toggle keeps re-enabling every map you load into now it wow. takes one second you press start twice and it even remembers where you were last in the menu. So if you've done it once, it literally takes two seconds to fix at the beginning of a remap. But that's an insane bug. Yeah, that is super that weird. should not be in there. Even stranger you know? that it resets every time you load into a map. That's some, that's some kooky shit right there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's rough. That's totally something where you, you see that on your bug stack and you're like, it doesn't matter. Continue forward. I think the one, one and, thing and that he, you got, and I didn't even notice it was an issue. Right. It was happening, but I didn't know if like I had like pressed something wrong. Cause every now and then you do, you're like hand slips. I'm like, oops, I'm looking up accidentally. Sure. Like, but I, Dan showed me it was happening to him every five seconds. Oh God. And, and for me, it happened like once a one hour battle. Wow. I didn't even notice it was an issue. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So like that Weird. explains maybe where whatever they were testing it on too. Yeah. If it's system dependent, had more issues. Yeah. If it's system dependent, maybe it wasn't even discovered. I, I will say that generally QA finds stuff, a good QA, mm -hmm. not all QA teams are excellent, but an excellent QA team finds more bugs than are ever fixed. And it's just about ordering and then chewing from the top uh, in terms of fixing bugs. So, yeah. Well, and I, I think these games are such a, I think you could literally do like a research paper on it because a new leak just came out and it's a leak. It's, you know, a rumor mm. it should be tagged as rumor, but I, it's entirely believable by me, to be honest. Uh, the the rumor is that Battlefield 2042 started out as a battle royale game, mm -hmm. just like it sounds like everything did. By the way, sure. <laughs> recently, I mean, Fortnite did so well, made billions and billions of dollars. Like Returnal, that just won an award for being a good action game, started as a battle royale game, and then they canned it three years ago mm -hmm. and said, "Nah, because mm -hmm. the what are we going to be better than Fortnite yeah. and PUBG? What are we in Warzone now? Like we're insane if we try to do this." And they just made a new game. What's fascinating is I also know Halo did from people I've talked yeah. to started as a battle royale game. I don't think it's technically acknowledged publicly, but it it, it did, and so did Battlefield. One of them made the right decisions. One of them. It sounds like rushed out what was an attempt at a full battlefield in one year. Supposedly, they made the decision to not be a battle royale at the end of 2020, right before they put out the trailer announcing the game. Wow. Wow. Well, it's not the first, first time EA has done something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. I, got, I got to plug uh, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels again. There's a 
really great information on Anthem. Like people didn't know what Anthem was going to be uh, until the Anthem trailer was announced, like put forward. Oh my God. The entire, I didn't the even whole remember dev that. You're team. right. This is like a classic EA mistake <laughs> at a certain point. It kind sounds of. like I wouldn't blame it's like you say it's EA. I don't know if you can really blame the, 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 the upper echelon folks for this. I don't, they don't really have a lot of bearing in what goes on in lower, lower studios. I think a lot of this comes from the leadership at individual studios. Right. I used to, uh, I agree with that. And I used to push back on people who are like, EA's the evilest company. I'm like, calm down, everybody. Yeah. It's like the buck has to stop somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, you know, who is actually making the game? Having said that, now that I've heard that this mistake has literally been made across several studios at EA, I'm just wondering if there's something there. I mean, maybe there's a cultural thing that predisposes people to shoot for the moon and then continue to try and get there until it, long past it's been obvious that that's not a good idea. So I guess to tie back, though, the last thing I would say is, you know, Halo was delayed a year. Mm -hmm. I can't help but wonder if like, so what, they tried to make the biggest Battlefield game in history in one year. It's kind of crazy. It works as well as it does, honestly. <laughs> like, <laughs> sure. like it, I, I just wonder when these companies are going to learn that it has to be good when it comes out now. This isn't the 360 or PS3 gen where it's like, yeah, maybe Fallout 3 has a lot of bugs, but it has zero competition. So get it out uh -huh. now. That's a fair point. Whereas I was, I was now it's say like, that, like you're, you have competition when you launch. It has to be polished at launch. Just If they would have delayed this a year, had more maps, mm -hmm. four times as many guns, perfect polish. Mm -hmm. Why is that so bad? Well, because it's so expensive to, to, to pay for a development team for a year. Um, mm -hmm. de developers are expensive. Your, your, your low end of artists are making 50, 60 K your high end of engineers are making, you know, mid six figures. Like it's, it will move or maybe not mid, but like, you know, lower quarter, six figures, people are making like $250,000 a year. And you have hundreds of these people across, you know, many, many studios. It's really expensive to make video games. And so when you're looking at this as like, do we launch now or do we launch later? Mm -hmm. You have to weigh that against the money that you're going to spend in improving the game versus the gains that you can get now by selling it. Mm -hmm. Right. And they think that, you know, it would be best to launch a game that gets mediocre reviews on average instead of a game that gets tens. Maybe, but yeah. I just, I think that was old way of thinking. I don't know that works anymore because now it might not, because I'll be honest, I actually think the core gameplay is the best it's literally ever been. Mm. And I love the maps and vehicles more than ever before. I actually do recommend people try it. Mm. It's just, but now it might just die of its own cynicism right. and the fact that everyone's piling on top of well, it. Was it Miyamoto said you can, uh, a delayed game that is eventually good is good forever. A game mm -hmm. that comes out now that is bad is bad forever because that's what people think of when they think of it, that game. It's like, oh, it's that game, it's buggy. I don't want to. And you're right. There's We have more competition for our time with different games, movies, and television shows than we yeah. ever had before. Like, I know Netflix has said that, like, we're not competing with HBO for eyeballs. We're competing with Call of Duty and Fortnite in order to get people to watch <laughs> our stuff that we're making. Very smart way of thinking of things. I, I like that statement. Yeah. So, like, when you're in the entertainment business and you have massive, massive companies that have made products that are designed for people to play forever, and that's the only thing that they do. And that's what Destiny is. And that's what Fortnite is. Those are trying to be your primary game. 
like where gaming is a hobby, they're trying to make Fortnite your hobby. They're trying to make Destiny your hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a bad thing, right? That's cool if you can offer everything that someone wants. That's great. But br- trying to break into that space is so difficult because the people that like that thing are probably already fed by someone producing it, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, like someone like me has played tens of thousands of hours, so it's not like I've played enough games to know when one's really good. So if you screw up, dude, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sure. like it's kind of like the difference. This isn't the first shooter I've played, so if it's not decent, like I have alternatives and I've played better ones. And, you know, it's like the difference between someone who's probably tried a thousand different wines or something, you know, sure, it's yeah, like, you have no, I can tell this one's better. Yeah. Um, although some people would argue that half of that's fake, but <laughs> I, I guess, yeah, I guess um, the final thing I would just say about it is, you know, what's crazy is they've moved people around the company. They've got new leadership involved. They're opening new studios to support Battlefield. So, and they put in three patches in a month that yeah. are massive. Just so you know, they've completely redone half of the UI already. Wow. They've, I mean, it's wow. honestly, and and, and none of it's added more bugs, which is mind blowing for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if any, I think people forget how much past Battlefield games have just added a bug every patch. But like, that, how expensive is that then, though? to do three well-tested and giant patches that redo the game in one month to get it into a working state quickly. Uh, five figures, easy, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's really expensive. Uh, Microsoft and Sony, like, obviously releasing an update for PC is free, because uh, except for bandwidth, right? But mm-hmm. uh, Microsoft and Sony, you have to go through cert, you have to get certified through their first-party certification teams to make sure there's a whole host of things that your game needs to be able to do, like idle for 48 hours without crashing. Um, mm. And really, that's a requirement. I, I'm, I'm, that makes sense, but I've never heard of it. That's funny. Yeah, and, and games will fail it for random reasons, random memory leaks that don't matter 99% of the time. But, you know, Microsoft and Sony want to be able to say, we offer a really excellent experience, and certification mm-hmm. is where that rubber meets the road. So yeah, going uh, they 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 want you to submit fewer times, and they want you to submit good quality software. So they make it expensive uh, to to add updates, to add title updates, as I believe the term. I can't quote an exact figure at you, and if I could, I probably sure. still couldn't. Uh, yeah, but I, I, it, is, it is not cheap. It is expensive. Mm-hmm. Want some? All right, you can keep having holiday cookies if you want, but. Keep in mind, you're probably going to want something healthier in about a month. That's right. Today's piece of content is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Whether you're looking for something easy to make on your lunch break from home during December or something that also checks all of your healthy boxes when you try to work off that holiday weight in January, Vite Ramen has you covered. It's made in America by Americans with healthy ingredients. And if you go to the link in the description or on screen and use the code BROKENSILICON, you will get 10% off. Off your offer. I mean, it really doesn't matter what you're looking for in an easy to make meal. Vite Ramen takes less than five minutes. It tastes great and it's not bad for you. That's why I actually do myself eat it regularly and why I recommend you do as well. Again, use the link in the description or on screen and use the offer code Broken Silicon. This does legitimately help the channel a lot and it also helps you save some time and eat healthy. Buy Vite Ramen today.
Well, I guess let me start transitioning into some final questions here. The first one, before I get to more of the advice and getting into game dev section, though, is yeah. I just want to ask this. Travis Gooding writes in, what's your view of Bethesda's acquisition? Mm-hmm. And do you feel like Microsoft is giving you full autonomy working on what you want to work on? Lots of rumors were flying around that you might potentially be pigeonholed into working on other studios' games. All right. So this is where this is the one question that I think I will answer that's it's a little sticky. Feels a little like uh, speaking for Obsidian when I perhaps shouldn't. But the answer is no. Obsidian's mm-hmm. doing what Obsidian wants to do. Uh, I feel pretty comfortable saying that that won't get me in trouble. Hopefully not. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, Obsidian's fine. <sighs> With the Bethesda acquisition, <sighs> mm-hmm. it makes me a little sad on on the one hand. I, I, it, it makes me wonder what was going on in that room that made that happen. I know their parent company was 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 not doing very well. And it was looking to sell. So maybe that's sort of the, w- what happens. Microsoft is like, hey, we have Game Pass and we want to fill it with, with stuff that is excellent. Here is a whole bunch of excellent IP. Because like, don't forget, and with Bethesda, you get all of id, right? Like, right. <laughs> there's a huge IP stack coming with you. I think it was a great decision for Microsoft to do that. I think it was a huge shot across the bow of Sony saying mm-hmm. like, yo, you got to step it up because we just took some of the most popular third-party games on your platform, right? Which they they were a little weird about it at first. They were like, is it still coming to PlayStation or not? And they were just like, well, we'll see. But now it's becoming very clear. And I had heard behind the scenes that the Elder Scrolls, at least the new one coming out, I mean, I leaked that a long time ago, was one of those games that they were definitely considering from the beginning, keeping as an Xbox exclusive, Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. I don't know, I... It's hard for me to say how much of it is good or bad. I mean, I game mostly on PC, so I don't know that I care that much. Sure, really. right. You're still, you're you know, as long get as what Beth- you get, right? Yeah. As long as Bethesda keeps making cool games, which I think they will, I, I don't really care. I think it, it there is some good in it, and that potentially we'll have to find out. You know, we, I don't have a crystal ball if it'll end up well, but that Sony did. Sony didn't get dumb like they did during the PS3 gen, but it did. They didn't have any fire lit under them. There was none of this. I know of several of their exclusives that were held back a couple of years because they literally didn't feel pressure to get it sure. out right away. And, yeah. I, and I don't know if anyone remembers the PS3 era between like 2008 through 2012. It's like five exclusives a year or more dropping. Right. That's because they were scared. Sure, yeah. It puts a fire under you. It makes sure you're getting stuff out. I think the fact that you haven't heard a lot from Sony, they probably feel pretty comfortable. Let me ask you a few questions, though, and, you know, you can no comment it whenever you sure. want, but the only concerns that I can come up, uh, that I should say, not only, I should say the ones that come to mind for me about Game Pass, I guess I guess it's two main things, especially relating to Bethesda. Is there any concern that now Microsoft owns Obsidian and then they bought Bethesda? Isn't that odd? Because aren't they all making... Aren't you guys kind of making the same games? Like, they're not the same games, but you know what I mean? Like, Obsidian made sense. It was like, ooh, what a great dev to make RPGs for Xbox. Right. And then all of a sudden, also, we now have Star... What is it? What's the... Uh, 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 Starfield. Starfield. Yeah. It's like, well, then what's the point of having the Outer Worlds 2? It, it, to me, it screams shotgun buying everything out there. Mm. But that's two competing games. You know, it's... it. Uh, I'm trying to think of, like, what I would compare to if Sony bought. I don't... But it'd be like if 
because resistance and kill zone were kind of a similar situation, but they were actually quite different. I don't know. But you see what I'm getting yeah, at? Like, sure. it just seems a little less tactical. And the fact that a lot of these games look similar, like Avowed, and then there's Hellblade over here and Hellblade 2. And there's like all these games that look, have similar themes that I'm seeing pop up. Well, I think, so I'm not, I can't speak to any specifics on that. I think broadly, sure. having a wider stable of games is good if your target is getting eyeballs on any one of them. Like, we don't care what game you're playing, so long as you're playing a game on Game Pass. Like, if that's their goal, then having lots and lots of different games that can be each their own unique thing, even if they're broadly similar, that's great. That means that someone can find their niche and feel like that niche was made for them. Mm -hmm. You're not going to, like, if you're just looking at this, I think you're looking at this from, like, a a back-of-the-box checkmark thing of what games has what features and sort of looks vaguely similar-ish if you squint on different competing platforms. I think uh, it's easy to do a different when you have different exclusives. When you're looking at different games on one platform, like does does God of War compete with uh, The Last of Us? No. No, but I, I would think The Last of Us kind of competes with uh, a lot of other third-person action games on Sony. And I don't think Sony tried to do that, but all of a sudden, all of Sony's games seem to be third-person action. I don't think they tried to do well, that. Well, no, but it's been really popular. Does, does, True. Let's say, does, does, does Uncharted compete with the last of us i don't think it does well it's from the same studio so they don't come out in the same year yeah, okay. so that's true right but i'm trying to think of like what other oh okay does um days gone compete with the last of us does i think so do you think so <laughs> maybe i mean this is a game about zombies sure but it's a very different game about zombies like true it's a different true. tone different kinds of mechanics are happening uh um, I don't know. Another random comparison. Compare God of War to Spider Man. It's a third person action. I would say game. infamous in Spider Man. Sure. I would wonder if we haven't seen another infamous for a while because Spider Man's doing well. So I don't know. I'm a big fan of the stuff that Sony puts out. I've played uh, all of their like premier games and loved every single. Pretty much the games we've mentioned. Yeah, and, and then now, Ghost yeah. of Tsushima is like I, I love Ghost of Tsushima. And is that competing with Horizon, though? I don't know that it is, but it's also so. like, yeah. I think the part of this is that it's staggered, right? Mm-hmm. They're not all coming out at once. If they're all coming out at once, then they're definitely competing because you only play one thing at a time. But these are games that aren't designed to be played forever. These are games that you know you play and you enjoy for, you know, it might take a while to finish the game, but they're designed to be finished. And then... Mm-hmm later you've digested that game and you're ready hungry for more and hey here's another game that's like that in some back of the box descriptions but it's still different it still tastes different to play you know uh ghost of tsushima versus a different one of these you know third person action games right so so there's but there's no concern from you about like I don't even know if concern's the right word but it's like the outer world 2 was going to be kind of this flagship xbox slash pc outer space rpg all of a sudden we have starfield coming out and it's like hmm, you don't feel like that takes away some of the prominence or focus nah. that it might have gotten otherwise i don't think so mm-hmm. i'd be surprised if they came out in the same year but again i don't know any of the details of when either of those games are coming out so well and if you did it's not like exactly i couldn't say <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay well i mean 
I, I guess one final question I would have is there, and this is a much bigger picture question about Game Pass and presumably about whatever Sony's working on that it sounds like they're going to have a competitor to it potentially. Mm-hmm. But is there any thought about like, like almost a race against time in getting subscribers into Game Pass versus, because I look at like these sales mm-hmm. and like you'll see games like Outriders, right? Come to Game Pass, day uh-huh. But then it comes to PlayStation and it, sells really well still on PlayStation. Mm-hmm. That's like $70, $60 times 10 million. I don't know how many how old the game sold. Right. Made, let's say 5 million copies of revenue that wasn't made on the Microsoft side. Yeah. Is there any worry that if it does if Game Pass doesn't gain enough momentum quickly enough that there's some cut in quality eventually because they're not pulling in the revenue? Because every time Sony sells a Call of Duty 10 million copies on there and makes that much money in revenue, you don't think maybe like, you know, Microsoft looks at that or Call of Duty is not a good example because that's not on Game Pass, right. of course, but. I think this is one of those things where I might have to say I can't touch it, right? That's, okay. <laughs> that might be a little too hot. Because I have Game Pass, uh, especially because it was a dollar for three months all of a right. sudden right next to Halo. Yeah. But there's just a part of me that goes, Halo is your biggest exclusive. You just didn't make 100 million then, I guess. Okay, I hope it's worth Bringing in the eyes. I just worry about the long-term effects of like funding studios. Yeah. Because it it is a gamble though, like trying to make this system work. Yeah. No one's made it work before with games. No, yeah. It's totally a gamble. And we'll see what we'll see what what technique pays off. They're trying something new. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting. Mm-hmm. But let me move on to the final questions here. These are the ones uh you, you said you'd be very happy to talk with people about getting into game development. Yeah. And I want to start with Otiv Kurtz. I hope I said his name right. Uh, hello, Taylor and Tom. I suppose I have several complete novice questions as I consider trying to become a dev. How diverse can your job be as a game dev? Are there instances where one person can simultaneously work on the story, art direction, game mechanics, character creation, and dialogue code optimizations, etc.? Uh, by chance, can you comment on how easy or difficult it is to find a job in game development based on your region? For instance, I'm in the Balkans. Do I need to consider moving to better my chances? And finally, how does a game development company get PCs? Do you guys have a budget and do you do it yourself, make them yourselves? Or do you get them from OEMs? Do you have something akin to typical game machines or workstations? All right, so let's take that from the bottom up because that that last question is really easy. Um, Both is the broad answer. It's going to depend on the company. I think a lot of larger companies have relationships with OEMs. The machine I've got from for, for, for my work at Obsidian is a, a Dell workstation. Um, came directly from Dell, I believe at least. And uh, but you also have situations where um, the the gaming machine, the, the dev machines that we were running for when we were working on the the Diablo two resurrected stuff, those were like the BlizzCon, and uh, they have a whole bunch of gaming computers set up as demo units. A whole bunch of our machines were those demo units from the previous year. And, you know, those were like gaming PCs. And maybe they were like manufactured by, you know, a a PC builder. I I doubt their IT department is building machines um, Mm -hmm. just because it's a pain in the butt. It's much easier to have a company dedicated to doing it. And if you have problems, you say, I'll ship it back. I was going to yeah. say, it's probably mostly about the customer support and replacement yeah, aspect, huge... right? Like, we don't want to have to, what are we going to compete with, you know, Dell yeah. <laughs> doing this as well as them? Right. Yeah. So that's a big part of it. Uh, IT in game dev is usually pretty competent, though. So 
they can field these problems themselves because you have a lot of those kinds of problems when you're working with that with you know lots and lots and lots of hardware all the time. Stuff fails, and you need to be able to fix it. So it's a mix of both is is really the answer to the question. Um, and it's always a big deal when new PC rollouts occur, and you know you're in the new wave, you got the new hotness, and then someone else is running with the you know three year old tech because that's what mm-hmm. people were using since the last uh, deployment. It's, that's always a big thing. It's always exciting. Uh, so let's um, let's see. Let's talk about. Div- but like, oh, go ahead. Yeah, like like should he move from the Vulcans, and how easy is it to be a game dev that's a little good at everything versus yeah. specializing? Like, what would you advise someone to do? Yeah. So in terms of like uh, the diversity question, uh, if you're in a small company, small studio, you're going to be doing more things, wearing more hats. If there's just mm-hmm. six people there, it's a lot of stuff to do to make a game. So, you know, some of the work is going to be divided out to people that have the capacity, right? Once you get into a really large company, you have people, you have teams of people that are specialized in one thing, right? And, and that, that what he describes there where someone's being a jack of all trades, really uncommon. The only person mm-hmm. that is doing all of those things that, that you list, Otiv, is like a game director, right? The guy mm-hmm. right at the top, there's one of him or her. Right. So if you if you if you have a broad interest and you want to work on lots of things, smaller teams will might let you scratch that itch. If you have a broad interest because you don't know what you might think you might <laughs> love, jump into like, like try and get hired and see what you like. Some companies are open to this idea of like you're gonna mm-hmm. come in, you're gonna be you're gonna move around a little bit. Generally they prefer you be like, I'm an engineer and I don't want to kind of I don't know what kind of engineering I'm gonna be doing. So you hop around. That's pretty common, for example. Um it 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 does depend on the company. And in terms of how easy or difficult it is to find a job, Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about what the game development team of the Balkans is like. Uh so this is sort of comes back to COVID. COVID has sort of changed the game. It changes the paradigm. It changes the game a lot. When everybody's working remote, it's a lot easier to work, work with remote people. I live on the East Coast. That's not where Obsidian is. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be working for Obsidian if COVID hadn't happened. Um, mm-hmm. Because that opportunity, I, I wouldn't have wanted to move to LA <laughs> on the metal level, I think right? the Sony Santa Monica guy may have said the same thing. I mean, technically he's around there, but it's like it was just so easy for him to jump from Treyarch to Sony Santa Monica right. because he didn't need to go in anywhere. He could live anywhere too. Yeah. And I, I think that's a paradigm shift that is going to continue rolling now. So that's like, so in, on one hand, like the, the game development has historically been hugely region locked where if you're not in a big mm. hub, you're out of luck and you gotta, you gotta move to the big hub to find the work. I think that's going to change. I do think that, the divisions of time zones and divisions of countries are mm-hmm. going to be still a pretty big barrier to entry. Yeah. Uh, if you are eight hours off of, you know, your home studio, you can't effectively collaborate with them because people are asleep while you're working. Right. It doesn't work. Uh, I- I've been trying to coordinate a meeting recently with some people who are actually, if you can believe it in Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. impossible. Sure. The time difference, it's <laughs> impossible to find a time. Yeah. Because if it's like 9 a.m. where I am, it's 9 p.m. where they are. It's, it's like, rough. oh my God, so how do I do this? Yeah, it's really hard to do it. And then you have like just basic bog standard stuff like taxes. 
and you know high like like right. that, that yeah that can just be something that uh puts the kibosh on any potential agreement. you're probably not going to be more than a contract right. if you're in a different country exactly yeah right because i think i think what covid's done is made us reassess everything and it's opened up the possibilities more yeah this guy at the Balkans can get hired at Oblivion, technically. Maybe. Does that necessarily mean it's harder, though? It's still probably a lot harder than if he was closer on the same time zone or yeah, something. Yeah, I think the time zone matters a lot. I'm three hours different from Obsidian, and you can feel it sometimes when you mm -hmm. are in a meeting and it's, you know, 4.30 over there, and over here it's 7.30, and I want dinner, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you try to limit that, and I'm lucky my team has been really helpful with, you know, Sometimes I don't go to that meeting and it's fine, <laughs> right? That sort of a mm -hmm. thing. I'm lucky that that hasn't been a big deal, but it totally could be a big deal. And, you know, game development is notorious about not necessarily respecting developers' time and, you know, personal desire to have a life or a family or something <laughs> like that. So, like, it's totally possible to do stuff that was impossible before, but proceed with caution. Mm -hmm. ask, ask questions about, like, how, when am I expected to work? What are my expected hours? Uh, not just like how, how often am I working in a day, but, you know, from when to when. Those are important questions. I would also say you probably just got to be, just keep in mind that these, it's possible now, but it's probably harder for you. So you're going to have to compensate for that by actively trying to get into like an indie developer team, actively looking around. It's not going to be as easy to like, yeah, run into people in San Francisco or something sure. or know someone who knew, knows there's an opening at Insomniac. Yeah, you're going to need to really be trying to court and probably get into some of these indie studios that will care less about those things. Yeah, I think there's the, the working from home thing has been really great for senior level people mm. and not great for not for like juniors, like juniors get so much benefit from working in an office, being able to reach out quickly right. to someone in person and be like, I'm having this problem please help me. That kind of a thing is a lot easier in person. And so I think uh, junior level uh, workers, they're going to be struggling a little bit more. Whereas a senior level person like me is like, I have an office that's quiet. You know what you're I know doing. what I'm doing. Yeah. I just, you just need to leave me alone and I'm going to be very productive. So it's been great for me. And I, I feel for the people that are struggling, honestly, because it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard. Brett Summers writes in, Hey, Tom and Taylor, I'm looking at building up a portfolio to start a career as a game developer. I'm self-taught and driven right now with no formal education. I've been building my own mini games in the Godot engine. I hope I said that right, Godot engine. Godot, yeah. And it was just... And was just wondering if this is a good enough start for a portfolio engine-wise, or should I switch over to at least Unity? Thank you. Yeah, so Brett, it matters. Um, I don't think the engine matters specifically unless... It really depends on what role you're looking for. If you mm. want to be an artist, probably doesn't matter what game engine that your yeah. art's running in. If you want to be an animator, probably doesn't matter. You probably want to choose the engine that is most conducive to showing off your work. So if you're an environment artist, I don't know if Godot's the right choice because Godot's a little harder to make something look really sexy. And if you want something to look really sexy with little effort, grab Unreal, throw your models in Unreal, mm. it's going to look great, right? That's the easiest thing to do in that case. If you want to be like a game designer and show off your cool ideas, I think that the engine that you're looking at matters less, and it's the uh, cool ideas that you can show and your thought process behind those cool ideas. For a game designer, 
That's the most important part of our portfolio. It's not just that, hey, I made this game. It's, hey, I made these game, and these are the reasons why I chose these mechanics. These are some of the thought processes that I went through in terms of making it. Because they're not going to hire you to make that the same decisions you just made for the for the, for this little game that you 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 have as a portfolio piece. They're going to hire you to think in the way that you they think that you thought. That's a, a hard sentence to parse. So let's see if I can break that down a little bit further. Um, as a game designer, you're making decisions all the time, and you're making decisions mm-hmm. that affect gameplay. And you know, a lead designer is going to want to have uh, someone under them that is thinking about games from how they're affecting the player's experience, how uh, effectively they can be implemented. There's technical and and design decisions uh, around that space that really aren't well described by here is a game that I made. You need more than that. So I think that's something that is worthwhile for a game designer. And if it comes to engineering, I don't think Godot is the right choice unless you're writing mm. uh, like a Godot native component in like Rust or C++. Um, if you want to do uh, engineering, Unity is a good choice. If you're just getting started, C Sharp's really nice. Unity does a d- good job with C Sharp. Godot's implementation with C Sharp is okay, but kind of awkward. I think you can get stuff done there, but Unity's a little easier to use if you were using C Sharp directly. Unreal is probably the is is a little more hard if you want to do actual code. It's C plus plus, and there's no ifs, mm. ands, or buts. Uh, but on the other hand, Blueprint is really useful and cool. And if you don't want to be doing a lot of coding, then Blueprint can be really helpful there because you can do a lot with Blueprint. It's very powerful. Um, so yeah, it really depends on what kind of a job you want. And I think that's the first thought is like, what do I want to do specifically in the games industry? Because you can get really specific and then try and showcase those skills that you have. Yoda King writes in, (laughs) he says, for game writers, how would you suggest that they get into the industry? What portfolio recommendations do you have or insights from do's and don'ts would you recommend? Game writing is hard. Game writing is probably the hardest portion of the games industry to break into. There are dozens of of game of prospective game writers for very very few positions. You have so I I, I say that it's discouraging words, uh, but it is true. It's hard to be to right. get a, a game writing position. The people that get game writing positions have been writing for a really long time. I can't unfortunately give you a lot of advice specifically of, of like how to you know present yourself to uh, as a prospective game writer and client. I haven't been in those interviews, so I, I can't I can't say what people are looking for, unfortunately. But if I were to pull some things out of my hat for things that I was looking for, I think it would be you, you need to be able to show that you can write. Like you need to show writing, and it, it could probably be. You know, any kind of writing, if you're showing off things like um, interactive writing, like you can, there's like, um, I'm forgetting the engines, but there's, there's different kinds of, of writing packages that will let mm. you write, you know, like choose your own adventure style stories that can get pretty robust where you can like set variables in there and sort of make a little game that's just text. And that's something that could be really useful as a, 
uh, showing off that not only am I writing and the writing's got to be good, but you're also considering like how to incorporate interaction intera and interactivity into your writing. And I think, again, in this case, uh, describing your thought process about why you chose to make certain decision points in your story and how those propagate out to the rest of and how they impact the rest of your story. I think that's also important. Again, though, this is really, really hard to get your foot in the door. I wish you yeah. all the luck in the world. I hope you don't get too discouraged. And I think the the problem is, is a lot of the writers they pull in, I think, are probably for like freelance portions of a game for someone who's already a writer in something else. Not all right? the time. There are, or am I wrong? There are, there am I wrong? Are, there are there just dedicated people that game are? writers? One hundred percent. And there are dedicated narrative designers. Um, it's one hundred percent a thing. It's just a hard thing to get into because on a large team, there's like three. Yeah. <laughs> so. Whereas again, if you're looking at I artists, saying it. if you want to become an artist and you're good, boy, howdy, it's like 60% artists in a studio, if not more. So Red Dead Redemption 2 had six horse artists, right? Six just for the just horses. For the horses. <laughs> and do you know how many, how many bloody assets are in that game? Oh my God. So many artists mm -hmm. in these modern games. Yeah. All right. You've been on for over two hours. I really <laughs> appreciate you coming on last minute. Uh, the, I do want to ask one final thing. It's something I like to ask anyone uh, tied to game development and the consoles themselves. Chris Ryan writes in, Hi, Tom and Taylor. With all of the new technologies that are in the new consoles, like the PS5's Tempest audio oh, yeah. and the adaptive triggers, how do you see those being used for new player experiences now and in the future? And what other fun things would you love to see in new consoles? I, for one, would wish a console would come out with dual output so you can play a split-screen game with one console hooked up to two monitors or TVs without having to share. I think actually one of those original PS3 things they showed off in 2005 for some reason at two HDMI outs, <laughs> by the way. But they axed it for... Pretty, I think, obvious, obvious reasons. reasons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, th I like to ask this. So, like, what do you want to see in a next gen console? What do you want to see in the? It's easier for me to say PlayStation Six. So I can have a pretty confident <laughs> guess. That's what it will be called. Right. I'm not sure what the next Xbox will be called. It might just be the X. Honestly, I think it might just be the Series X 2023 edition, and those yeah, just maybe. Be editions like car yeah. models. But like, what do you want to see in next gen consoles? It's oh, a good question. So, my my default reaction is I think VR is going to get really cool i think that's what that's what i want to see i want to see more vr stuff out of consoles because they are probably one of the more effective mm -hmm. ways to give a lot of power to a lot of to people say that right if there was a time where it really helps that you only have to develop for one piece of hardware it's vr, VR. yeah because you need those crazy optimizations just to make the sucker work you need to know exactly what's going to happen it's so cumbersome to game in vr that making it as close as you can to press button to start <laughs> totally helps make up for oh, how cumbersome VR is. Yeah, I've got a VR rig. I love my VR rig. I hardly ever use it just because in order to get into my VR rig, I have to do, you know, half a dozen things, turn on lighthouses, you know, clear out my play space. Mm -hmm. And I have, a, I have a space ready to go. But, you know, there's also those pillows in the way and all those little pieces of friction can, can cause problems. And then if your software doesn't work, you're like, oh, well, darn it. Now I don't want to do this mm -hmm. at all anymore. Um, so in a space where you have full control over that software and hardware stack, you can make that friction go way down. I think that could be really cool. I don't know if that's what consoles specifically are going to be doing. I feel like consoles are very, very mature things. And 
the stuff that the PS5 is doing with the audio and the adaptive triggers is really neat. I actually really love the triggers. I thought that was, was a really mm-hmm. clever, pretty simple implementation if you look at how it's implemented in hardware uh, to make something that feels really neat, feels totally new. Different from before. Different from before, yeah. totally unique. Yeah, so if, if you're looking specifically at the hardware space of box that plugs into TV that I play with sitting on the couch, Maybe it's just a failure of imagination, but I, I can't imagine something that would like fundamentally change how I experience that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think SSDs are one of the last ones. Yeah, the, the, the changes to having SSDs, like the, the Xbox Quick Resume feature. Oh my God. I was like, I have like six games sitting ready to go on my Xbox. I could just hop right back in. That's a really cool feature. I want PC to have that feature. That's just a such- Yeah, it's a problem for me with PC in that respect. <laughs> it's becoming. Because I work, you know, today, I, you know, I, I got up, I had to find, you know, what guests can I pull in? I had to put out questions. I had to write a script. I had to record with you for a couple hours. I'll then after this have to prepare all the files for my audio engineer. Yeah. Like this is, I'm going to be exhausted at the end of this day. I really wish PC could uh, catch up with the consoles a little bit in the press button to play yeah. Yeah. time, for you sure. know, which the consoles seem to have just nailed. So it's they're, like, they're, they're I don't know how they improved really that. good. Uh, I, I wish they had better content delivery systems so that I could fully saturate my internet pipe when I'm downloading updates and downloading games. Sometimes it's a little frustrating. It's like, I know I can fit, fit you know, like 400 megabits and you're only giving mm. me 300, man. It's better than the last gen oh, though. Yeah. Where 100%. Especially the PS4 was even worse than the Xbox last gen, I believe, and it's Wi-Fi card or whatever. But. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, man, I really want to answer this question well. I really want to think about it and like pull something out of the ether that feels really nice, but I don't know if it's going to happen. It might not be worth the time. I think the majority of it, and I just get a different answer. Either the Sony guy said, can you please quadruple the RAM for me? Sure. And, <laughs> and then the uh, Brian Heemskirk said, can I have a hundred teraflops? You know, right. like that's what so he like wants. Completely, complete overkill. I think that is probably, that's the future of this stuff is make it faster and make it more able to do more things. I think there's, if we had a brand new memory architecture, and SSDs get close to this, where, but if we, if we had a memory architecture where like, we were able to almost eliminate the difference between RAM, cache, and SSD. So, Which it seems like Sony tried to do that, but it's really not, it's still not. It's, it's, it's not, still it not, it's a lot it. better. Like just having a nice SSD and this, the, the, the black magic Sony's put into their SSD engines is really cool. Um, able to do some wild stuff in terms of raw numbers. I think going in that direction where it's just sort of like, mm-hmm. hey, this thing can like really chew on really, 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 really aggressively fast memory. And it has a lot of it where you can load things instantaneously, like actually instantaneously. If all your memory is ready to go immediately. That would be pretty wild. That's sort of pie in the sky sort of stuff. I actually don't know that it is. And here's why. People need to remember that these consoles aren't coming out. There will be probably the pro updates and all that. Sure. But the, the, the truly next-gen versions of Xbox and PlayStation, and who knows if, you know, like if Nintendo ever tries to compete there again or someone else does, they're not coming out for like four or five years. So you got to think, remember, what's possible in 2026? Yeah. I had on Dave Eggleston... Mm-hmm who was the VP of embedded memory at Global Foundries mm. and like like really top of the line in terms of an engineer who works on different types of memory yeah, systems. Yeah, I remember his interview. Yeah. Yeah, he his answer was pretty straightforward. He's like, honestly, I don't know the consoles next gen need more RAM. 
of GDR, whatever. I think what they probably need is just a terabyte of like Optane, next gen Optane. Sure. Yeah. And if you do that, close enough is what he said, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, like I, I do think that's something that we need to think about maybe the PS6 and the next, or not the next Pro, but the next, next Xbox, really, right. I'm guessing, is able to maybe just 32 gigs of North. You almost wonder if they'll add any more RAM, actually. I don't know that they will. As long as they have enough to feed the bandwidth, then they just have like half a terabyte of something in between DDR and GDR. Yeah. I, I wonder if that, like load times are instant now then, so. <laughs> I think we might see something really interesting with 3D stacking, where you have mm-hmm. like way, right. way, 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 way more cash than we're used to seeing in a system. I think that might be the new thing. And yeah, if you look at a lot of my recent leaks with like Bergamo and all of these other things where like the way AMD was building Zen 4C is maybe if we cut the cache in half, we can double the amount of cores per CCX. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, wait, is that even a downside if they can just put a layer of cache on top of the die? Right. Yeah. And, you know, like I wonder, like that's that's a good like what if they put 100 gigabytes of cache on the next gen consoles? The new Epic chip has, you know, like I think almost I don't remember what it was, I think about a, what was it? An insane amount of cash on Milan X. You wonder if what they'll do is, you know, why even use Optane? Why can't we just have 100 gigabytes of cash that we store the game in while we're playing? Every programmer I've talked to is like, that is our dream, please. Oh yeah, if you're talking about that, it's like, oh, you never have a cash miss. Amazing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think 100 gigabytes is, is is an order of magnitude or two three too high more than necessary well i think well i don't know though i'm just thinking like what if they could just literally put the game in the cache and just say done holy crap you could get some wild performance you could get wild performance out of the hardware we have now if you had that kind of architecture see that's the question that's when you wonder if it will be worth it because it'd be like you know you could have one console that's like we have a thousand teraflops and the other one's like well we have 200 teraflops but we have 100 gigabytes of cash like which one would fundamentally perform better yeah. you almost wonder if it'd be worth even using like an outdated node to be able to afford to put that <laughs> maybe i think well the other the, the other thing to think about with the memory is like the the heat and the power when transferring memory comes from the distance that memory has to move as does the latency so the closer you can get it to the stuff that's doing the processing the better and that usually mm-hmm. means smaller if it's smaller it doesn't have to move as far do it faster well yeah it's all it's all heat and energy yeah Yeah, i that's something i think people forget just so much when they're like looking at cash and stuff it's like you understand that if it's in the cash it's it's hard everyone thinks of it as moving at the speed of light but like the speed of light is actually a speed that limits things (laughs) you know and like if you look at the size of a motherboard and like moving data back and forth if everything was on the cpu that's that many more cycles yeah you can send an operation than if it was lower in the motherboard or well, something. Well, I mean, the, 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 the problems, you're, like the, the bottlenecks there isn't the speed of light. It's like your memory controllers and, mm-hmm. and moving and replicating memory between, like you have three layers of, of cache and then your RAM. Right? And if mm-hmm. you're paging to disk, that's another, or like, like several orders of magnitude slower. So like that's, that's really complicated. And if you can simplify that, it's, it's complicated because L1 cache is so fast and so expensive. And then, mm-hmm. you know, L2 is, slower less expensive so you can have more of it etc right that's why it's that way so if you could have a if you you had the whole system running on wild amounts of l1 cash it would be bananas i don't think that's ever going to happen because you know 
So if you I would had, say never say never. Well, but I, I, I think the L one situation is a very long time away. I, I say that because like if you have something that's that you can make a lot of and it's really fast, you probably also have something that's really expensive that you can make a little bit of that's even faster. So I feel like that like multiple no, multiple stages of memory is not going away, but we are going to see things where I think we are going to see just like how we're faking uh, lighting less and less in our processing of graphics, we're going to be uh, hiding memory closer and closer to the CPU, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's a metaphor or an analogy that draws. No, yeah. I think so. And the more I think about it, it's like, you know, it's funny in the 80s and 90s, all we wanted was anything we could get in terms of computing power, right. like just anything we can get. Like we're on like kilobytes of RAM here, right. guys. Like, and eventually I think in the PS3 and PS4 generations, you got to, oh, we did it. We have terabytes of storage. Yeah, terabytes of RAM. Gigabytes of RAM, yeah. Gigabytes of RAM, we can actually do things. And now it's turning into, oh, I don't know that we need more so much as it needs to just be better. Yeah, yeah. The more I think about this, the more I'm like, no, I'm pretty dang sure these people like Mark Cerny and people at Microsoft working on the next consoles, the first thing I would be doing right now is like, what year can we just have 32 gigs of GDR7 or whatever, mm -hmm. and then 100 gigabytes of cache, L3. Like, that's right, got to right. be what they're trying 100, to do. Even 100 this. megabytes would be a lot. Well, and, you know, I think RDNA 3 is going to, what was it? I think they might have 512 megabytes of Infinity Cache is kind of what I'm hearing. That's so that's so, okay. crazy. That is that, the frame buffer that's, of, that's the entire right. frame buffer of a graphics card. And that's in 2022. So yeah. what's possible in 2026? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That's all I'm saying to everybody. Yeah, it, it could be really did cool. That, 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 that just changes the paradigm of what you can do in a game. Absolutely. But, uh, all right. Well, that was, I thought, a fun discussion to end on. Again, I really want to thank you, Taylor, for coming on the show. I think this discussion went great. I mean, for being last minute, I, <laughs> you know, I don't think it could have gone better. And, you know, obviously, everyone listening, remember to subscribe to Broken Silicon and give us a review. You know, subscribe to Moore's Laws that YouTube channel. Consider supporting us on Patreon. You can ask us like this questions. And Taylor, is there anything you want to plug? You know, besides buy the Outer Worlds 2 or something? <laughs> That's right. Buy the Outer Worlds 2, buy a VAD when it comes out. Uh, and on a completely different tack, I've been working on a, a note project for the past year. And if you go to my Twitter account that I'm sure Tom will have yeah. uh, in, in the, the show notes, I'm working on a little note taking app called Tangent Notes. I really like it. I think it's neat. I'm just, it's just starting to get off the ground. If you are interested in notes like the app Obsidian, which has nothing to do with the company Obsidian Entertainment, it's a bit confusing. Anyway, for the like the three people that were like, huh, I like notes, check out my Twitter. It'll be cool. <laughs> so, so what does your app do? Tangent notes? Yeah. So, I mean, it's like a markdown note editor and it's just something that I've put together because I got frustrated with the different kinds of notes software that's out there on the market and i wanted something that for like code or noting code uh, or for i mean it, it supports you know uh it supports putting code in notes but it's mostly about like just you know prose just just text keeping track of my thoughts keeping track of connection okay. between thoughts um it's sort of designed for you to make like your own little personal wiki of thoughts and mm -hmm. information and uh focused around uh writing that and uh, exploring your own uh, workspace of, of thoughts. Yeah. So yeah, it's, 
Yeah, I forgot I forgot the name of it. I have a note app on my phone, but the phone I turn off the phone for the recording. It's true, yeah. I have a note app that works pretty well and backs up everything, but it's like either I make a checklist or just one long paragraph. It doesn't really let me do anything useful. Yeah. So I know I wanted you to talk about it because you're plugging something. It's like let's, you know, let's make this a 30 second <laughs> sure, ad yeah. at least, you know? Uh it's it's uh early days yet. I have some cool plans for how I can integrate things like uh checklists and Kanban boards and mind maps. But at the base level, I want to give people a really nice, uh, simple, sexy Markdown editor so that they can focus on just uh, working through their thoughts and processing them and then uh, finding connections between them. Because I've found that practice to be really cool personally, and I think it's something that uh, can benefit some folks. That's literally like how all of my scripts start for my leaks and opinion piece videos. It's, It's like a... Just just a pile of different ideas. And then over time, I'll be like, you know, these two narratives I was writing here are pretty much the same idea. Mm-hmm. I should combine that into a yeah, video. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, totally. All right. Well, check out Tangent Notes, everybody. Cheers. So that's good. <laughs> and uh, otherwise, um, yeah, I guess, I guess that'll close out the show. Thanks, you, for coming on one more time. Well, and thank you to everybody time. for listening. Cheers. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. 
Brad Medlin, Anthony Gareffa, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yacht, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Akwari, Frederick Lau, Lynn Lee, Justin Paris, Zachary Martin, Terrence Harrod, Jada Full, Phil S, D31337 Antics, Jackson A. Miller, Jesse Jeskowiak, Josh Law, JB Jing, Travis Gooding, Mechanical Philosopher, Lee Wilkin Kilo, Fatboy Deezru, Daniel Hyde, a guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Cole Addict, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, F7, GOS, Matthew Landavazo, my name is nobody, Judson N. Alethros, Jensen Wang, Hey, there's a kitty. Greg T. Wanchek, Rend Taro, Matt Sukata, John Jameson, Sam Vensel, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jan Rauner, Chris Licata, Michael McGee, Meyer Techrans, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Grode, 3DS Boy 08, Dominique Koch, Stefan, Original Ross, Sandy Garrido, Sound Derson, Joaquin Hagen, Teak Autumn, Sol Connor, Michael Casa, Andrew S., Z Jits, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Endless Loggins, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Zutsu Taylor, Trevor Power, Stu, Alenia, Nanya, Daniel Nishbal, Franco Frederick, Dane Galinowski, Ian Clifford, Alex, Axel Cisneros, Leighton Perry, Joseph Caraman, Brett Summers, Blake, Denovan Russell, No Nicoella, Zlicky, Martin Porchegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Hulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canoes Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Brucha, Jeremy So, Michelle Pell, Brett Summers, Eddie Del Castillo, Joseph Loria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Justin Gower, Caillou, Mark Kelly, Valko Malev, Gabe Langner, Ronnie, DNA Tech, Michael D, and MJB1, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Sarcastro, My Sharona, Waitrui, Roman D- William W. Draper, Air Rat, Spamton, G. Spamton, Henry Zhang, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amiable Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Semi Malas, James Anderson, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, R. Pete Sharma, Meat and Pork, Jimmy and G. Mads, Gordon Freeman, Benjamin Oshley, Mark Mitchell, Shield TV. Couteau, Aaron w- John Wissing, Mohammed, Jean Debunt, Post Media, Sean Ashmont, Daniel Dewar, Steven Zhang, JSMMH, Georgie Kastaninov, PC Beast 22, Reginald Ari, Narathiel, Ivan, Charles Russell, Hall Buma, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. 